This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan-Nathan and Peter Gowers. Thanks to Ward Keller, the Territory Law Firm. Hello there. Welcome. This is the Territory Story Podcast. I'm Peter Gowers and joining me, my co-host, Leon Logan-Nathan. Hello there, my friend. How are you, mate? I'm good. How are you? I'm good, actually. It's a lovely uh, evening outside here in uh, sunny Palmerston. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you always got to rub in the weather, don't you? Ah, <laughs> uh, well, you know, you, can it, you we, we can we we can only enjoy it for so long before it starts to get a little bit hot, and steamy. <laughs> well, that's true, but you'll take that over uh, the, the chilly climbs down this way, and and I would too if I had the choice. Yes, no yes. doubt about that. Well, mate. Um, uh, given that it's sort of uh, hunting season, as it were, um, politically, yeah. uh, and we've got an election coming up very soon, um, we're sort of in the throes of going through a number of uh, political aspirants and uh, politicians that want to renew their uh, faith with the people. But I thought uh, tonight we would pivot to a politician who has, um, like the NT Independent Newspaper, been fiercely independent mm-hmm. um, for much longer, I might add, in the uh, seat of Nelson, which he won, I believe, in 2001. But he can uh, confirm that. Um, but unfortunately for Territorians and perhaps fortunately for a few other political aspirants and parties, um, he is retiring at the end of this term, so he's got another six weeks to go. So uh, with on that note, can I introduce you and our audience to Mr. Jerry Wood. Jerry, welcome to the podcast. Uh, good evening. Uh, welcome, Leon and Peter. Yes, nice to be with you on this cool evening in Howard Springs. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm half outside here on the back veranda. What's uh, the temperature out there now at Springs? I don't know. I haven't put the jacket on all year, but tonight I put it on because I was feeling quite cool. Goodness. So I did notice it was going to be minus one in Alice Springs tonight, so perhaps we're getting a little bit of that cool weather this far north. Minus one, wow. right. Well we, well, we did have Robin Lamley on the podcast uh, recently, so she was all rugged up in Alice so perhaps we are getting some of that cool, dry. There must be a high sitting in the Great Australian Bight, is there, Jerry? Not sure, but <clears throat> been windy, and that sometimes brings the cool air up. And also, it's great weather for growing vegetables. Because <laughs> <laughs> I used to grow vegetables a long time ago at Outbush, and this sort of weather is good. So um, we want to talk to you about that and a lot of other things, Jerry. Um, so can we start with your uh, with where you were born? Because I noticed that you were born on the 5th of April, 1950. So that means you would have just turned 70 this year. And that's, it's so easy to work my date, my age out. <laughs> I've been born in 1950. <laughs> yes, and I used to follow my grades at school because I think in 1954, I, I, uh, I, no, sorry, 1960, I think I was in a uh, year, um, well, in those days was, uh, year one, I think, in secondary school. Yeah, I, I, right. I started secondary school quite early. Right. Yeah. So where were you born, Jerry? But, uh, yeah, well, it was handy to be born in 1950. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, where were you born? 
I was born in uh, Camberwell, so um, a, a beautiful part of Melbourne. But oh. uh, we lived in one of those, even though people think of Camberwell as uh, rich and beautiful mansions, which it is, uh, we lived in one of those little houses that had a 30-foot frontage and 110 feet down the back. So it was one of those narrow houses with a little laneway to get into the around the back of the house. Um, so um, it was... Um, it was a little bit of a jam sandwich for six people in the family, but it was a lovely house to live in. It's still there and it's still part of a most beautiful street. Um, we go in summer, it's completely shaded by trees. You go there in winter, it's completely bare. And you go in autumn, it's just a beautiful match of colour. And um, I've always, uh, I mean, I go back there when I can. And sometimes when I look at like suburbs like Palmerston, I just wish we had planners like there were in Camberwell, in Palmerston, because we don't seem to have that vision that they had in those days. Which street, Jerry? Radnor Street. It's uh, my understanding it's a Welsh name. I think there's a Radnor Forest in Wales. So um, beautiful street near Camberwell, football ground, not far from Hawthorne. And, of course, I'm naturally a Hawthorne supporter, uh, partly because my mother said my nappies were that colour, <laughs> partly, partly because... Um, it was the nearest football ground, Glen Ferry Oval. So, and John Kennedy actually lived in our street. The coach that died recently, who was my mother's pin-up boy. Oh, there you go. Yeah, well, I'm from those parts as well. I've got to declare my hand. Uh, I wasn't born and bred in there, but I, I moved at a very young age to uh, to Barker's Road in Hawthorne. So, oh yes, um, that's where I did my growing up, and I I, I can. Um, I, I think we're kindred spirits because I, I too lived in one of those uh, smaller houses in Hawthorne, whereas my, a lot of my friends lived in some of those two-storey uh, mansions, as they call them, uh, you know, in some of the more leafier streets. Yeah. But a beautiful part of the world. Beautiful oh, yeah. part of the world. And your parents, Jerry, t- tell us a little bit about your parents. Were they um, Anglo-Australian or were there some... some oh, yeah. um, no, uh, more um, Irish... Right. Irish extraction more, and it's and there's some English and there's some German. I understand in my family, but generally Irish. My mother is McGuigan, or my mum was a McGuigan. She died last year, just over a hundred. Um, she came from um, French Island. She was born in French Island. Not not many people know where French Island is. They all know where Phillip Island is because they have the the races there, car racing. But no, she was born on French Island, and. Um, Lived on a farm there, so she's really a country girl. Um, and she went to boarding school in uh, uh, in Melbourne for about a year until the family ran into financial difficulties and then she had to go to work. And my dad was born in uh, Mooney Ponds, not far from the Mooney Valley racetrack. Mm. He was a mad Essendon supporter. <laughs> so he, he, he was, um, even though his name was Wood, he, he's from Irish stock. Um, I haven't followed his family as much, but I have been back to see my mother's side in Dungibbon in Northern Ireland uh, where I had a, met my cousin I had never knew about uh, who taught history and politics at St. Patrick's School, um, which I reckon would be a fairly dangerous subject to be teaching in Northern Ireland. Basically, <laughs> it's the wrong thing. And you took it ho- and someone took it home to their parents. Yes. But she's a beautiful lady, uh, a beautiful part of the world. Um, it's a lovely part of the world. But, yeah, my... Um, my, my McGuigan side, uh, side owned, um, my understanding, Young and Jackson's, and they also wow. owned land 
uh, around where Myers are today, or near St Francis Jeez. in the CBD. So two of them, two of the brothers came out to Australia as engineers. Uh, yeah, so it's quite a history with uh, uh, the McGuigan side of my family. So Leon, for your history there, that, that's a bit of uh, very much Melbourne history. Young and Jackson's is uh, probably Melbourne's most famous pub in the middle of the city opposite the, uh, the Flinders Street railway station there. Right. It's very famous for a certain certain piece of artwork. Chloe. Yeah. <laughs> yes, which all the soldiers, I'm told, when they got off the train coming back from the war, all popped into Young and Jackson's to have a beer and have a look. Yes. <laughs> so I, I have I have a little magnetic sticker of her on the side of my fridge, a little bit wow. out of the way for people to see in my office. Mm. Yeah. Right. So uh, five brothers and sisters then? Uh, no, um, two brothers, three sisters. Yeah, two brothers. Um, one's a priest. He's a retired priest, lives in Lawn in Victoria. Uh, the other one studied to be a priest, but he, I think the attraction of the opposite sex got a bit great for him and he got married and he's, uh, he had a good, big, a good background in music, a Bachelor of Music in piano and singing. He married a, a lady who had similar qualifications and they have six children and they're all fantastic singers and play music. So on that side of my, my family, there's a lot of mu- music. My s- three sisters uh, all lived in Victoria except my middle sister, Patricia. She lived here for 40 years. She came to Bathurst Island when I was working there, joined me at Bathurst Island. She worked there for 10 years and she worked in Darwin for most of the rest of her 30 years and she just moved down to Lakes Entrance. Uh, but my other sisters have all, all live in Melbourne. Right. And so um, how, did you, uh, how did you end up in the Northern Territory? Oh, that's always an interesting question. Well, I went to Burnley Horticultural College. My dad said, would you like to study horticulture? And I, in my spare time, um, in between playing sport and studying at school, I used to go around to, and do some of the gardens for people for a bit of pocket money. And he thought I might be interested in getting into gardening and horticulture. So I did a three-year horticultural science course at Burnley. Um, And when I finished that course, um, I was worn out mentally. It was a very hard course. I found 13 subjects a year you had to study, uh, plus doing a lot of practical work and and going out bush and seeing um, experimental farms and things. It was a great course. I loved every minute of it. But I thought I don't think I wanted to study any longer. But I thought maybe in my utopianistic idealism as a young boy of 19, I thought I'd, I could help Aboriginal people. And don't ask me why. Maybe I read it in books when I was younger or magazines. And um, I, we lived across from our local church right across the road because we moved from Camberwell to Glen Iris. So I mentioned it to the local parish priest that I was interested in. He knew another priest in Croydon in Victoria, Victoria which has had a seminary there belonging to the missionaries of the Sacred Heart. So I ended up having a meeting with the Father Black and he just happened to have in his office at that time a brother who was leaving the order, who had to get permission to leave the order, who knew that Daly River had no gardener anymore. They used to have a gardener there and there was nobody doing the garden. So he said, there's a vacancy because originally I think I was meant to go to Port Keats. So they said, no, we need you at Daly River. So about a few weeks later, um, I told my mum, basically, I wanted to go. 
So I caught the train from Melbourne to Sydney and then hopped on the P&L Ronce, the passenger liner, 50 years ago. Um, and um, I caught that um, caught that ship to Darwin. And on the same day I arrived in Darwin, I had to say hello to the bishop, hopped in a Toyota or an old Toyota Land Cruiser, if you ever know the old Toyotas, they had a big gearbox in the middle. Well, I had Father Leary who'd just come out of a hot operation. He was going down to the mission. And a sister Bernadetta, who was I thought was old then, but she kept living a lot longer than uh, over many years after I'd been there for a while. And I had to sit in the middle. So I'd gone from an air-conditioned ship down the Stewart Highway, which was the narrow Stewart Highway. It wasn't wide mm. like it is today. <laughs> with spear grass, spear grass on either side of that road, about six foot high. Never seen anything like it. It was hot. It was humid because it was March the 4th. Um, we saw the odd buffalo pad on the road, which I call cho- chocolate cakes these days. So you had to watch out for buffaloes and, and what they left on the road. But we got, out, got to about, in those days, 20 miles out from the Daly River Mission on the dirt road. Um, the vehicle started to slow down and the lights started dimming. And eventually um, the, ca- the vehicle just stopped dead. Um, we didn't know what was wrong. So here we had a priest that just had a stomach operation driving the car. We had a nun that wasn't going to be able to walk that distance and had a passenger in the middle who had no idea where on earth he was. So the poor old priest had to walk 20 miles to go and get help. So oh. that was my – and we eventually got help in some ungodly hour of the night and got to Daly River the next morning. Yeah, so Jeez. I just kept thinking of all those people on the air-conditioned ship that left Darwin to head to Singapore <laughs> while I sat there with mosquitoes and sounds that I'd never, ever heard in my life, you know, noises in the dark. Oh, yeah. yeah. But that's all right. I smoked a cigar my mates had given me from Burnley Horticulture College. That kept the mosquitoes away that night. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. So that's, that's, that's my first introduction to the Northern Territory. Right. So you so you went to work in Daly Waters, did yeah, you? Yeah, I, um, I had to learn a few things. You don't grow bananas and pawpaws in Melbourne. You might no. grow cabbages and lettuces and, and even, you know, co- celery. You don't grow those too well up here. But, um, yeah, I, I um, had to learn how to grow bananas and pawpaws and sweet potatoes. So there was a bit of a learning curve. So I had a group of about six Aboriginal people. Um, I think there were five women and one bloke. Uh, they were all wonderful people and some of them are still alive today, quite old. Um, and I'm, I'm the little brat, 19 years old, uh, know nothing about Aboriginal people at all. Never, you know, come out of middle-class Melbourne and walk into a majority majority of Aboriginal people. Um, so it was a, certainly a, a, a change. And so I learned to grow vegetables. Uh, there was a garden there and there was irrigation pipes and a citrus orchard. And, um, but at the same time, they also had a dormitory, which is a Sydney Williams Hut, if you know Sydney Williams Huts. Uh, they, when the mission was built, it must have got quite a bit of material from the army in those days. And Sydney Williams huts were uh, the main sort of building around Darwin and some of the um, defence force areas up and down the track. So uh, quite a few of those buildings were used on the mission originally. So the dormitory was just a Sydney Williams hut hot, no 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 uh, air conditioning, no fans, no no real lights. So I had to look after about up to thirty boys that came in from cattle stations, and they stayed at the mission during the school days, and then they went back home during the school holidays. So my daytime job was trying to grow vegetables. 
my nighttime job was organising um, something for the kids to do at night. So we'd have, I put on, we had a, a whole library of 16 mil films, which everybody had seen 500 times mm. um, because that was the only movies they could see. So they mm. we went round and round through those movies quite often. Um, so I showed what those on Tuesdays, Tuesdays and Thursdays. Sorry. What, what were the movies? Oh, well, put it this way. If they were Westerns and lots of Indians were being shot, they all of Aboriginal people would stay. They'd love it. Right. It's so romantic. All the nuns would stay and all the Aboriginal people go home. So you had to be you had to work out what you wanted to put on. But there was a film called Broken Arrow, not the modern version. There was an older version. And it had been played so many times that I had to always have lots of sellotape next to me because it would keep breaking. So you always next to the projector you had a little thing you could split the <laughs> the, the, the film and get the sticky tape back on it. And so you, that was always one of the most popular movies. And then eventually we were able to get movies in from Darwin, so we were able to show a bit of a range of movies. Um, the, one of the problems you used to get with showing the movies is um, on a very hot and steamy night, maybe in the wet season, you get stink bugs. And stink bugs <laughs> decide to fly down down the top of the projector because the projector throws light upwards as well as to the screen, and they'd be attracted all of a sudden, he'd hit his, he'd smell his burning dead stink bug, so he'd have to stop the movie, <laughs> clean, apart, clean it out again, and away you go again. Yeah. Some nights you'd have a failure of electricity because we didn't have power then. We only had DC electricity. And I sometimes used to have to park the tractor up behind the, the movie area and put the welder on and run the <laughs> welder and run the power from that. So that was that. So when we weren't doing films, we'd be doing things like boxing matches. So we'd put some boxing matches on uh, for the kids at night. Um, so we're always looking for something to do. On the weekends, um, we had a big trailer on the back of a tractor and I'd, we all get the kids on the back of the trailer, um, throw in a few sweet potatoes and watermelons and head out bush and have a good good afternoon uh, or good day that way. Yeah, good fun. Or go fishing because you're on the Daily River. Yeah. Back in the days before game consoles and kids being addicted to streaming television and stuff. Yeah. Oh, no, look. Life was good, but the, the main problem always was alcohol. Unfortunately, alcohol was embedded in Daly Rue when I came mm. because there was Mar Fairweather's pub and there was a Robbie, Robbie Sandbar's alcohol outlet further down towards Woolliana, and they were both the major cause of, of we didn't call it domestic violence in those days. It was just violent. Mm. Uh, and, I, you know, as I said, I came out of middle-class Melbourne and to see some of the violence against women in those days was a rude awakening for me. But, you know, people were still lovely people. There's no doubt about it. I still, uh, you know, I go back there and if I see some of the older people, it makes me feel good. But it's just sad that, um, and I've told this to a lot of people, half those boys, um, those 30 boys that I had in the dormitory, half of them died under the age of 21. And that's basically wow. associated with the alcohol. So that's always a sad, sad, sad part of my life because they should be a little bit younger than me. I wasn't much older than them. They all should be alive today. Unfortunately, mm. that's so. People say, "Why don't you drink?" I say, "Well, here's a good reason." Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Once you've seen the negative effects, it's a uh, it's a fairly hard thing to ignore, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So it's... yeah. So that's where I worked for a number of years. Yeah. And then what happened after that? Oh well, I was I was showing the movies one night, and this lovely lady was sitting on the edge of the stage because we showed it from the stage and you showed back out to the back of the to the the, um, the building in fact if you ever go to daily river and you go to the store that was the picture theater 
Uh-huh. Back then, so yeah, so that's the picture theatre. So um, yeah, well, there was this lovely looking lady there that I hadn't seen before because she'd been away in Sydney, and um, that happened to be my wife, future wife. I just sort of told. <laughs> was she a nun? <laughs> no, she was just a no. She, um, and she's a, a lady lives with me now. Um, she comes. She was born down near Channel Point, Bulgar, they call it, near the mouth of the Daly River. She was born on the beach there, so she's a, she was uh, had um, uh, five sisters and two brothers, um, and she eventually went to school. Even though they lived out bush for probably the first five or six years, she went to school at Delisable, uh, which is now Ewan. and then her mother had leprosy, and the government was going to try and separate them up, put them on Croker Island, and keep mum down at East Arm, which was leprosarium. But their father was very strong-willed. He was half Chinese, half Aboriginal, very strong-willed. And he got in touch with the Bishop of Darwin said, uh, can we stay at Daly River? Daly River was just starting up, had a clinic, so she had somewhere, a place where she could be looked after. And he knew the language. He could speak, as, my, as my wife says, he could speak about five or six of the local languages around there. So they moved to Daly River, and that's how I got to know her. She just happened to be there when I happened to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, what was she, she doing she in Sydney? Of, she originally was a nursing aide a long time ago before the Aboriginal um, health workers came to be. She ended up, she did work as an Aboriginal health worker when she came back from Sydney. Uh, she actually worked for Mr Jack Renshaw, the Premier of New South Wales, as a domestic. And I know this, I've seen some things on television sort of talking about slaves and, um, you know, Aboriginal people having to work for white people. But everything, I, every, all the stories she's ever told me about her sister are, and herself going to Sydney were all times of great joy. They loved it. They loved uh, it. They'd travel uh, around Sydney on the bus. they go to Luna Park. they go around everywhere. And they were well treated and, and well, you know, looked after. And it gave them um, an education about what life is outside of a little place like Daly River. Uh, and, and that was a good side of it. It sort of gave them an education that you probably couldn't get from just reading books. How did you yeah. get the job in Sydney? I think that um, some of the people, like uh, maybe some of the nuns, because the, the nuns are a lady of the Sacred Heart, have their headquarters in Sydney, um, and maybe there were just contacts there. Um, and uh, it seemed to be something that um, uh, it was a way that I the nuns thought they, some of these young girls could get an education, um, get an understanding and, and sort of aspire for, you know, other things than just staying uh, on it, at Daly River. And as I said before, one of the problems that was always um, overhanging those places was um, is the, the abuse of alcohol. So, you know, what was the future for some of the young girls, you know, um, because it was horrific, you know, some of the, some of the, the stories that happened was because of alcohol. Um, I remember, I'm fairly sure it was, either, it was either Christmas or Easter and we were singing carols, it would be Christmas if it was carols naturally, we were singing outside the church on the front lawn there and this woman came up and she had half her head just covered in blood. Uh, she just, you know. So there were things that stayed with me. It's funny, you know, you, you, you've come out of a, uh, you, you're thinking that this, you're coming to a place where you're helping Aboriginal people, but you really have no idea mm-hmm. until you get there and live amongst those Aboriginal people. Um, and um, unfortunately, some of those things are the same things we hear today. So 50 years on, there's still a great, lot of work to be done to, to get around some of these issues that you can't give up. You've got to keep trying. 
And, and so why, why haven't, do you think there's been any great strides in the last 50 years, Jerry? Yeah, look, it's, you've got to be careful. I'll, I'll say those things. But on the other hand, none of my, none of my sisters and daughters drink. Uh, they're all good people. There's a lot of good Aboriginal people. Um, in fact, I was down at um, Humpty Doo uh, the other day for the opening of um, uh, Danila Dilber's new uh, clinic at Humpty Doo, and it's all full of Aboriginal people, um, great people. You're talking to them. Uh, they know some of the issues themselves. They're not silly. They know there's issues out there that they've got to work through, whether it's convincing people that COVID-19 actually exists or whether, you know, we need to, you've got to improve the way you live, less sugar, uh, better better uh, eating habits because um, uh, two of Imelda's, my wife's um, brothers, died probably from uh, diabetes. Um, and um, so yeah, those Aboriginal people I saw working in that clinic, they were fantastic. They, they gave you a feeling, well, look, there's people out there, Aboriginal people working for Aboriginal people, so you're hoping that it'll make a difference. But unfortunately, alcohol is still a, such an addictive drug for a lot of people uh it makes it hard but you just got to keep trying and seeing those people the other day just oh it gave me a lift actually so this is great this is good yeah it's uh, interesting you mentioned that your father-in-law is half chinese and half aboriginal i think i, I never knew that that such a person ex- such a type of person actually existed until i came to the territory um and it's only when you live up here that you actually understand the depth of the multiculturalism uh, you know that created those, um, uh, uh, you know those uh, uh, well um, unions. That's right. But the fantastic thing about Darwin is that you'll hear people saying, oh, "I'm going south. Life's getting too hard. Or I can't get a job. Or uh, I don't like it anymore." But what's the core? The, the core population of, of Darwin is people of mixed race, especially look the our kids, the our fats, the our toys. Mm. Um, now Morgan is a bit of an unusual name. I have a daughter that works in archives. Um, and they have never been able to find out who <laughs> who the Morgan is. But we do understand that there were Chinese that lived, camped down at the mouth of the Daly, catching fish and drying those fish, and they were drying them for, uh, to take back to, obviously, to China. Uh, so, um, and there, obviously, there were relations down there because that's where the Aboriginal women were living and, and blokes, you know, they were looking for company. And that's uh, that's where some of those relationships started. But you just have to look around, uh, look at history, and uh, you'd see that at times there were more Chinese by a long way than European people in Darwin. Um, so, and there's still a great number of you know the the descendants of the Chinese with our the original first mayor of of Darwin, you know. And then there's been other mayoresses of if I can call them that way. They're probably not allowed today um, <laughs> of Darwin, um, the Fong Lims and all those sorts of people. Um, so they have a great the influence on Darwin, the Chinese people. Um, so, um, yeah, I think yeah, my my uh, family would be proud of that little bit of Chinese heritage. Um, but uh, that they are, I think, that that mixed race you get through Darwin. Uh, plus, you've got lar- lots of Larrakia people still. They're the backbone of this part of the world, really. Uh, and there are that's not to say uh, non-Aboriginal people aren't, but uh, they're the people will stay come hell or high water. Hmm. And so from there, uh, where did you head up? When did you- um, well, I actually got, it's a bit of an interesting history. It's funny. Um, when I, I had to go and see the bishop because I thought I was going to stay at Daly River and I went to see him about getting some um, upgrades to the irrigation system in because uh, in at the 
in the garden because it was old-fashioned with steel pipe, not aluminium pipe, which is very hard to, you know, to cart around. So I was looking to get some improvements in what should happen in the garden there. And the bishop said, oh, I, I hear you're marrying a girl from Daly River. And I said, yes. And he said, well, you can't stay. I thought, what? He said, no, we don't allow people to marry Aboriginal women there and stay, which sort of rocked me because I wasn't ready for that. <laughs> I'm not 100% sure for this to this day exactly why, except that I think they were worried that people were coming into missions and having, you might say, a very short relationship with people and leaving them. But um, I wasn't intending to do that. Um, so we had to go and then find another job, which I found working on a farm on the other side of the river, which was a bloke called Snowy Best and his wife Claire. They owned a farm and they asked me to work there for a while, so I grew vegetables and cropping. Um, and just from a little bit of history, Snowy and Claire Best used to own the Nunamar pub. And they bought it from, I think it was Bill Gunn, who used to be the big pastoralist. You've got to go back a bit in history. So um, so I worked for them. Um, we used to load up watermelons from the other side of Daly River, put mattresses on the back of the truck first, load up with watermelons, uh, put pumpkin, mangoes when it was the season, and I'd head to town. Um, I'd be playing Carly Simon on my, uh, <laughs> my, my cassette recorder, plugged into the cigarette lighter, and um, drop off at Adelaide River store and he'd buy a few of the veggies while I'm going past and then I'd take the rest into town and try and sell them at the different places in town, Caritos and Kavanagh. Uh, there was, it used to be a shop in Kavanagh Street where um, uh, I think it's where the Bank of Queensland is now, somewhere there. So I used to have a few places to sell it. Hopefully no watermelons were cracked by the time I got there. Hmm. Um, yeah, so we did that for about a year or so and then in 1974 there was a big flood <laughs> and that flood wiped us out. It, um, it ripped, ripped the ground to pieces in, in where I was working. We had to get evacuated by helicopter, the ones you see in Vietnam, that kind of helicopter, wow. evacuated out and landed at Bachelor, so we had to live at Bachelor. And then I was offered a job at uh, Bathurst Island with the new council. So the new Shire Council was the first Aboriginal council, I think, at least in the Territory, possibly even Australia, and I was offered a job to be the work supervisor there. So I ended up working seven years at... Um, Bathurst Island, firstly uh, starting up a nursery, trying to tidy the place up, getting the football oval in as good a condition as we could with very little water. We actually planted grass by hand to try and get some grass on the oval because uh, otherwise you're playing in mud. <laughs> um, and so we planted trees. Um, we you know, did lots of beautification work. Where I had to look after about 107 men. So we employed everybody that wanted a job. We had no unemployment benefits then. And the worst thing I still think to this day is when Mr Whitlam brought in the idea of unemployment benefits. It should have been a case that everyone could get a work job on on that community uh, as long as he wanted to work. If he didn't want to work, well, that's bad luck. But we used to have people work four hours, six hours, eight hours. We had old men going out with a tractor getting firewood for the pensioners. On the way, they might pick up a wallaby or two or a possum or something to eat on the way home. But they were active, they were working for their community and they were doing something useful. And unfortunately, um, I think we've got generations of people that now expect social security. When when you're living on your own land, I think that that's nearly a bit of an insult. You should be able to find enough work on your own land and you should be able to get, you know, uh, I think be able to 
work with the community to make work. And uh, there's always plenty of work repairing houses, you know, as I said, looking after the oval, painting, um, as I said, painting houses, fencing the airstrip. We had all that sort of work, fixing up erosion along the beach. Um, there was plenty of work to do and it was a good time really. And then I um, ended up being the, the town clerk of New York. I could probably give you another little story that goes with that. I wasn't intending to be the town clerk, but what happened, you might know that when I joined Bassus, that was the end of the missions. So the missions were finished. So they had superintendents before that. They ran the mission with a, not saying with an iron, iron fist, but they were the bosses. So they lost their power because the council then had an elected council of Aboriginal people and it was their job to say what should happen in that community. So we had a Catholic superintendent priest who was losing his power and we had a Protestant town clerk who had taken over on the council and uh, the two didn't get on too well. <laughs> I don't know whether there was a bit of Irish in them uh, or what, but they didn't get on that well. So I had my confessor, you might say, as a Catholic priest, and I had my boss as the town clerk. So eventually I think it got a bit too much for the town clerk and he decided to pull the pin, which left me as the town clerk. So I did that job for a while. And then all of a sudden the garden job out of Bush became vacant, the gardener left, and I took that job up. And um, that's where I grew vegetables, lots of bananas and watermelons and sweet potatoes, and then we started a chook farm there. And... Um, I'm just trying to think of the gentleman's name. He um, he he still runs a, a cattle station down the track at the moment. And uh, if I think of his name later on, I'll tell you. But he he happened to be at the island, and his father used to be a big uh, egg producer in Melbourne. So he decided we could start up a chook farm on Bathurst Island, and we use the manure for the bananas, and we'll sell eggs to the people. So he built um, a chook farm for me there, fully automatic. It was on battery, it was battery hands on cages, uh, which is probably a safer way for chickens to be on the island. Uh, mm -hmm. Means people can't get them, the dogs can't get them, <laughs> the snakes can't get them, and they can. We only we, we had fans and misters to keep them cool, and only two a cage. So we looked after them, even though they were caged, they weren't you know uh, under any great stress. But uh, he he built that, and that's where I learned to to raise chickens. And chickens, as you might know, came into my life elsewhere in politics. <laughs> so, that's that, so that's where that started and then I finished there and went back to Daly River and if you've ever been to Daly River there's a little little uh, group of houses just near the Woolliana Daly River turnoff and it was built there as a um, um, flood refuge and we're just getting a couple of those helicopters from the army going over here because our house generally is right in line with the Robertson Barracks flight path. <laughs> I was wondering who was coming over. I was wondering if some tourists from Victoria might be coming in on a, on yeah, a they stealth could be, mission. They're going to drop them off at the quarantine station there. <laughs> drop them in. Yeah, so. so I went back there. I ran a little tourist thing on the hill for the now Unambiu because then Daly River was no longer a mission. It had its own community. So I ran a little the, – the flood – the flood refuge was there, used as a sort of a, a little bit of a tourist place for, uh, for accommodation. So we had a little store there. We ran our own power. Um, we landscaped it and beautified it, and we did that for three years. And then I had to make a decision then when my children were getting bigger, as a lot of people do when they're at Bush, do I send them to boarding school or do I move to Darwin? So I moved to Howard Springs. 
where I've been ever since. Yeah. So that's how I got there. And what did you do once you got to Howard Springs, Jerry? Is that where the political aspirations kicked in? No, not quite. No, no, no I didn't really have any political. Yeah, except for the, I, I enjoyed my time in local government at, yeah. at, um, at Bathurst Island. No, I, um, I went and worked at the local hardware. They'd offer, they're looking for someone to do irrigation. Um, so I you know, had a fair bit of background in that, doing vegetables and, uh, and also gardening. So I ended up being more as the manager of the, the garden and irrigation section at Howard Springs Hardware. But at the same time, they just started up, um, Hitchfield Shire Council started up. And um, I, I wasn't taking that much of an interest, but there was a first election and that was that first election was um, only for two years. And when the two years were up, they had another election, so they got back in line with all the other councils because all the council elections were at the same time. So I put my hand up. Um, I suppose having the advantage of working in a hardware helps your advertising because a lot of people come into a hardware <laughs> and say hello. Um, so, yeah, I had that advantage. So I... I thought, well, look, I, I enjoyed my time looking after roads and worried about sewerage and all that sort of things, water and uh, parks and things that you get over on the island. So I put my hand up and I won the won that seat, which was uh, the North Ward. So I did that for, um, I'm just trying to think, we've been um, seven, eight years. I was the North Ward councillor. I thought that's enough, and then the president said, "No, I'm leaving." You're saying that <laughs> so, was John Maley. So I said, "All right, I'll give it a go." And no one stood against me. Right. <laughs> so I ended up being the president of the council. I did another round um, as the president, and I held on that for a year. And then the elections for the territories came up, and I thought, "Well, I'll give it a go." Um, I did stand way back. I should I should say that I wasn't always a winner, by the way. Um, while I was on the council, the um, there was a lot of controversy about Gunpoint, and there's a township that's been planned for Gunpoint for many many years called Murramajuk, and um, there were plans are actually originally to put a, by the Russians to put a a satellite launching facility there, a rocket rocket launching facility, um, and uh, we thought that was going to go ahead, but that that didn't go ahead. But in the meantime, the government wanted to develop Murramajuk and wanted to do it in such a way that the houses would be on the cliffs, right on the cliffs, so five metres off the edge of the cliffs. And I've never been a fan of, you might say, that sort of public land being given over to private people. All that foreshore should be always public, a bit like the Esplanade in Darwin. But I've seen examples of where this hadn't happened. Like if you go to Wagite Beach uh, on the other side of the harbour, that subdivision where people, more or less their houses, face the right onto the beach and there's not really what, a, lot, a lot of public land. Similar to um, uh, Dundee, you go there and the land there isn't really public. I'm just watching as a possum going past here somewhere. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, um, so I <laughs> crawled out a, a pipe in a second. Um, if you hear a gun so, go off, we'll know what it is. <laughs> yeah, so, so that's right. I oh, know. We might put him out bush if he starts making a mess, but um, so the government got crooked. The council at that time, council had power over what should happen in their area. They had three people on the planning authority, and the government only had two. So Mr. Hatton, who was the chief minister, didn't like the council's view that this subdivision should be set right back about 100 metres, so that you had public land, and then people could build it. You know, as I said, like the Esplanade, they didn't like that. 
So they decided we're going to take that area out of Litchfield's control. So they're mm-hmm. not going to be able to control the planning. So John Maley, who was the president, and Jack Ellis, who used to run the Litchfield Times, that was our local paper then, they sort of got together without me knowing, I think, and said, we want you to stand. Hmm. So, to, you know, so I wasn't going to stand against Noel Padgham Burek, who was my local member. So they said, we want you to stand against Terry McCarthy. Now, Terry McCarthy was a good friend of mine. So when I announced I was standing against him, his wife was just livid. <laughs> <laughs> so I, um, I, I stood. I had ten days of, um, ten days of uh, getting to know the electorate, which went from Cannon Hill in Kakadu to Dundee Beach. So I didn't quite cover it in ten days, but I covered a fair bit. Knocked on doors in Pine Creek, uh, unless they had a pair of boots outside the front door, because that's a mining town. <laughs> um, Jabiru and um, Adelaide River and places all over the place. But I got 15% of the vote for 10, for 10 days running around the country. I thought, oh, mm-hmm. that's not too bad for a fairly small effort. Yeah. So, um, um, so I didn't, I didn't uh, um, obviously didn't win that election. Um, I, stayed, I stayed out of the next election, which um, I'm just trying to think. Um, Noel Pagin-Purick retired and the next election, uh, Dave Tolner stood as an independent. He lived down on Andrews Road in Humpty Doo and he stood in that uh, election before 2001. And he probably would have won the seat as an independent, but he had a fight with the president, I think, of the Labor Party. I think Dave used to either sell superannuation or insurance or something. Somehow he had a big row and he upset the president of the, the ALP so much that the president said, we'll, we'll give our preferences to Chris Lugg, who was CLP. <laughs> and Chris Lugg won on preferences from Dave Tolner <laughs> or, Dave, or for, that Dave Tolner would have got. Yeah. So that probably saved the Nelson electorate of having Dave Tolner. He was on the podcast, Jerry, and he, yeah, talked, he, he talked all about this. Yeah, and all what I can a- say is hallelujah. What what, uh, surprised me, and I had no idea. I mean, when he said he was born in um, Beawila, and you know it was Joe Bielke Peterson country, that's when all you know a few light bulbs started going off in my head. You know, things started to make a little bit more sense. And then when he said that he ran as an independent because he was so annoyed about John Howard's um, gun laws, I thought, oh my gosh. Right, okay. <laughs> no, I don't think Dave and I see eye to eye, put it that way. Right. No. Right, so um, you, you then ran against Chris Lugg in the following election in 2001. Yeah, I, I, I didn't win the uh, first preferences, but none of us got to 50%, so um, I got over the line with the um, Labor preferences. So I think I got about 51 or 52% of the vote. Which I thought wasn't too bad for for an independent to knock off the minister for sport and education. So um, yeah, I mean, I, it was a big surprise for me. I thought, well, I might get close, but winning it, I nearly fell over. And I, someone rang me and said, "You've won the seat." And I nearly and, yeah. and I, fact, I was in town, I think, doing an interview. Yeah. Especially since uh, you won it in that very momentous election where Labor won, uh, came to power for the first time in mm. since yeah. self government. Very strange in Parliament because you had all these CLP people who were in a, still in a state of shock. Yeah. Um, 
we weren't they weren't on the right side of the parliament house. <laughs> uh, they, they were the wrong sitting in, yeah, the opposition <laughs> seats were not for them. <laughs> but they were in the end, yes. Uh, so. so how how did that feel? I mean, that must have been such an interesting uh, time. I mean, it was for well, people outside parliament, let alone inside parliament. Well, there were two independents. There was, of course, Lorraine Brahms, who had retired, resigned from the CLP. So she was there. She got re-elected. And it was myself. Uh, look, I always said, look, um, I expect to have the L plates on my front desk in <laughs> Parliament for quite a while. Mm. I mean, it's a, you know, a couple of weeks before I went to Parliament, I was slashing people's fire breaks. Because <laughs> I was working part-time at the hardware and I was doing other yeah. work. Um, so all of a sudden I'm having to find a tie. Yeah. Yes, and I didn't, but I didn't. I didn't wear a suit. I have never worn a suit in Parliament. Uh-huh. It's, it's one of the strange things that you live in the tropics and people wear suits in Parliament. But anyway, why do they do that? Um, I, I've noticed that Michael Gunner wears a suit a lot these days. And oh, I think the CLP a, started that, didn't they? They did. Shane Stone. It's teams. You're in the team, mm. mate. And apart, yeah. It's like Bunnings. We're all part of the team. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the like, give me a break. It's not the stock exchange. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, it, yeah, we had sittings in Alice Springs and yeah. I wear a suit down there because it's cold. Yeah. That makes mm. sense. But I, I just, yeah, Austin Ash used to always thank me very much for not wearing a suit. He oh, said. yes. Mm. Most He's sense. big on the not wearing a suit, isn't he? Oh, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so it um, it was a very swift learning curve and there was a fair bit of pressure on me because when – Lorraine Brahms was in the chair. She probably didn't want to vote too much because the speaker tries to stay out of a lot of that stuff. Mm. So there was a bit of pressure on me by the CLP, even at that stage, um, to try and meet, try and get me to vote with all the things they were putting through. Mm. So being the newcomer, you know, you had to sort of try and work your way through all that pressure as well as trying to understand the issues that were being put forward. Jerry, I yeah. wanted to ask about that. I, I know. Uh, I noted in some um, bio information that I read about you that, that of course, you were voted in as an independent and then you offered the deputy speaker's role. Uh, And, of course, uh, Lorraine was also an independent at that time. Um, And we've just had quite a long period where Kesey Purick was also an independent speaker. Is that something that's a, a tradition in the NT or it's quite unusual to have a, an independent as a speaker? What, why have we done that? Well, I think because Labor didn't really have a lot of people to spare. Okay. Right? So it was a very close numbers there. I think um, if you listen to the speeches done by uh, Claire Martin, I think even Sid Sterling when he, he supported me being the deputy speaker, they were all very much proud of the, the idea that the speaker should be independent. Mm. And um, this was a good opportunity to do something different, and I wholeheartedly agree. In fact, I think I'm, I've written letters a long time ago, even saying that perhaps the speaker shouldn't even be part of Parliament; should be simply a, an adjudicator that makes sure the here's the, here's the box of rules. Um, my job is to make sure they're carried out. But anyway, it was great. The, fu- the funny thing is, as you learn in politics, it doesn't last. The Labor won the next election by a long way, even though Claire Martin had said. Uh, I, I was looking for the quote when I was doing my speech recently. She said to um, a paper in Adelaide uh, how wonderful it was to have independence in and how, you know, it's a good example to other states more or less. But as soon as they got in the second term, we were out the door. Right. Jane Agard Jane became the speaker and Lorraine and I sat around and uh, mm. didn't have the job anymore. Yeah, so 
it's funny how things do change in politics. If you ever wanted to make an argument for having uh, independence in the speakers, uh, you only had to see Bronwyn Bishop on show to, to, to see that it's, <laughs> it'd be um, a wonderfully uh, unique idea because she didn't matter how much she tried, it was difficult for her to ever be independent. Yeah, there have been certainly some, of more recent times, I thought I'd been quite impressed by some of the speakers in, in Federal Parliament. I thought they were very astute and had a good sense of humour, but also able to keep, you know, both sides pretty well mm. where they should be, yeah. So and, I enjoyed uh, my time, yeah. I, I was the, you might say, the speaker for a little while because Lorraine Abram's husband died suddenly. Uh, so that certainly threw me into the into the fracas. And you might remember the one time there was a, a fairly unusual debate going on. It was about actually from memory, um, it was a bill that the Chief Minister was putting forward in relation to Aboriginal people taking over or having control of our parks. So it was a fairly technical bill. Anyway, at that time you would have heard about um, Chris Byrne said something not too nice to some person called John Elfring and John Elfring got out of his chair and was going to <laughs> bother him. <laughs> yeah, anyway, what, what, what the problem was then is that um, I ruled, look, I didn't, I didn't hear what was said, I didn't see what the problem was about, just go back to your seats and because I umpire football, that's probably the way I'd umpire me. <laughs> no big deal. Yeah, just go Back and sit down. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Let's, let's continue with the debate. Anyway, I think it was Sid Sterling and that he complained. He said, no, no, we don't accept your decision. So when that happens with the Deputy Speaker, they had to go and get, I don't know who was they had to get at that time. I can't. But anyway, I was, I was in the Deputy Speaker chair. Lorraine might have been back by then. Anyway, she had to make a ruling. So she, I think she called him into her room to discuss it. Anyway, because Labor was thinking that Chris Burns was the person that really was being given a hard time by John Elfring, but it just happened to be that Chris Burns said something uh, not particularly nice, uh, mouthed it, I gather, to John Elfring, and John Elfring got upset. So really, uh, it, Labor needed to actually shut up at that time and everything would have moved on and nothing nothing would have appeared in the newspaper, but it did after that. And then, so maybe they just should listen to the Deputy Speaker more often. He's, he was giving a wise decision. The wise man <laughs> himself. That's right. <laughs> uh, uh, so, I mean, so as a as a speaker, you, you weren't able to vote on things, or were you? And in the territory, oh yes, you, you can. can you can right. vote. So they have the casting vote as well. Yeah. Uh, so it's an unusual situation, but yeah, um, and that's look. I know that um, Keys will get up in times and join in a debate on various subjects, but. Um, the reason I didn't really want to be the speaker, and I probably could have put my hand up for it, at least I don't know whether I would have been voted in, I lost the opportunity to to, put it, to speak on a range of issues in relation to my rural area. I got there to represent the rural area. I, I wanted to speak about those issues uh, and, and the broader issues. And, you know, one of the things I've loved about Parliament, from my perspective, is the ability to get up and debate uh, bills and to, to debate various subjects. And I think in the last year, last four years of Labor, I think we've, that's gone downhill a bit and even to some extent with the CLP. Um, it's become like, you know, you push things through. Everything's nearly a, you know, it's, it's already, it's, it's a shut case. We've already agreed on it. Uh, so you go through the motions of Parliament and you pass things. But sometimes I, I feel that we, we need more time to debate things. Um, one of the things that we introduced when I first started was ministerial reports. Now, I'm not sure I'm the person that introduced it, but 
a minister could get up at the beginning and give us a, a, a five-minute discussion on, I don't know, uh, cotton growing in the Northern Territory, and I'd be interested in that. So the opposition could get up and speak for three minutes and I could get up and speak for two minutes. Uh, just that little debate was I thought was good. It also told people what was happening in the Territory. So you could advance that debate later if the minister wanted to give it a statement, which was a longer, longer debate. But we don't, even though we've got ministerial reports on our books in the standing orders, we don't use them anymore. So I sometimes think, you know, that we needed to use Parliament for a lot more freedom in, in, in debating issues, get a bit more depth. And I think in the, the last, a lot of the bills that went through that I had, had dealings with, you, you couldn't squeeze some of the answers you wanted out of the ministers. It'd be just, I answer that question. Okay, we move on. Yes, yes. Mm. But, um, yeah, so. Um, Tell me, I, Jerry, I, uh, you've, uh, you, know, you, you mentioned that it's been challenging under the current Labor government and it was uh, challenging also under the previous CLP government. Which do you think has been tougher? Well, probably the, pre the previous ALP Labor oh, government, the one where I had the balance of power. Oh, yes. Um, I thought you might be convenient yeah. that bit. <laughs> <laughs> some, things, that. Some, yeah, some things aren't easy. Um, that was probably the most stressful part of my life. Um, oh, no, not, not only. No, it was, the last CLP was very stressful. Um, people think it's an easy job at times. It does get stressful, especially if you know you've got to go out and make a decision or you're going to speak on something that's not popular. Yeah. And I've had to do that a few times in my life. Um, but um, having to make a decision which I knew would upset people in my electorate, mm. who it's fairly conservative seat, um, you know, just historically that's the way it is, um, um, and obviously upset members of the CLP in Parliament. And there's a couple of members of the CLP that still are in Parliament recently who were people who didn't agree with what I did. I didn't raise it in the valedictory speech again. I didn't think I don't go, go over old wounds too much. but. Um, it certainly, um, I believe, the decision had to be made not on who was in power, but what was good governance. And what was that, Jerry? What, what are we governance. talking about? So good governance to me yeah. is one no, of the no. most important what, things. What was the issue that you were voting on? It was, well, the issue came about that um, we had an early election. Um, Paul Henderson had taken over the leadership from Claire Martin. Yes. Um, I don't know... I'd have to recall it by reading the papers, but I have to wonder why he actually decided to go early. So not a bit over three years instead of four years. Yes, yes. He decided to go early. Yes. Um, and whether that was the cause of him losing um, a number of seats, but in the end he won but just. Yes. So he had a majority and um, he was travelling along, I suppose, fairly smoothly for the first year, but then Marion Scrimgeour had a bit of an argument about, I think, spending on Aboriginal communities and there were Aboriginal issues that were sort of bubbling under the surface, whether there was enough, you know, money being spent in those areas or enough emphasis on those areas, whatever it was. So she pulled the pin and became an independent. Mm -hmm. So basically the government was okay um, as long as everybody stayed still. So <laughs> <laughs> well, as long as no one else jumped. <laughs> but what happened was... What happened was then Alison Anderson also decided she didn't like, she said that 
she didn't like something that Paul Henderson said. She actually sort of was insulting or something. And so she didn't like it. And I don't know whether she wanted an apology or not, but whatever happened, she decided she was going to walk. So as soon as she came over, that left me, and she said she wasn't going to vote with the government. Um, Marion Scrimgeour decided in that time to go straight back to the government. She'd gone as an independent. So she went back. Uh, once, because Marion, even though she she pulled pin on the government, she said she would still vote with the government. But that, but Alison wasn't going to give that um, support, which meant that I had to end up having the balance of power. So um, um, I could have left it at that and just said, oh, well, I'll just take each thing each day as it comes along and just wait and see what happens. But I thought, well, that's not going to be great for good governance. The government wants certainty. It doesn't need sort of uncertainty. Um, and um, then Terry Mills decided to pass a motion of no confidence. He had a meeting with me and Kezia Purick and Alison Anderson um, at uh, Kezia's house and we discussed what, you know, what are the possibilities. One was that I join, not say join the CLP, but I support the CLP in her confidence vote and, Certainly, Terry gave me the impression that, you know, maybe there's a possibility of being a minister. And there were a general discussion, and I must admit I did feel that that was a possibility. There's no doubt that I felt, well, you know, though this, I might, might go that way. I'm, I've got a conservative seat. Um, then I got a phone call from someone in the army. I'm pretty sure it was one of the senior people in the army. Don't ask me why. I'm just driving on the road. He said, you better, look, I hear you, you know, having discussions. So I said, and he must have known Paul Henderson somehow, maybe from official business, and he regarded him as a fairly, you know, decent bloke. He said, I think you should be, don't forget to go and talk to Paul Henderson. You need to discuss this with him and not just take it on one person's view. So I went and had a meeting at Paul Henderson's office at, um, at the annual supermarket there, shopping centre, uh, with Dennis Bree, I think, who was the sort of the in-between person. But I'd known Dennis regardless of politics for many years. He lives out in the rural area. So um, we discussed things then and then we then got around to what would happen if I was to, um, did give you support and we we came up with a uh, an agreement, a contract, um, which then allowed me to go back and have a think about it. So this is like the Kirribilli um, Accord. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Well, I think it's even like a swimming pool, which people laugh at. Because <laughs> we didn't get the swimming pool. I didn't get it. I, didn't, I admit I didn't get everything I wanted in that, uh, but um, that wasn't the be all and end all. In the end, I decided that uh, whilst I the contract was important, most of the things in the contract were not for my electorate. People don't understand that. They were either for the rural area, even the bicycle path, believe it or not, that was that got a go ahead after many years of trying was actually not in my electorate, it was in the electorate of Palmerston's. <laughs> but um, we decided, I decided that I would support the government and there were a number of conditions. One of the main conditions was that I would support the budget. Um, yes, of course. But, um, but, yeah. I, I, that, but I would not necessarily support their legislation. Mm. So I had the power mm. to say yes or no legislation, but i give them support for the budget. Mm. Um, now, the reason why I said I'd support them is because they were elected as a Labor Party. Mm. The Labor Party was elected. Alison Anderson was a Labor member. She was elected as a Labor representative. They'd been in for just over 11 months, 12 months, I think. 
um, I felt that they should be given the right to still continue um, their role as the government. Mm. I was also told at one stage that INPEX, the Japanese do not like unstable government. Mm. So I saw my role also to try and bring stability. Mm. So we had a rough time in that towards the end of that first 12 months with people coming and going. Mm. Um, and, I, and I was told that really, uh, you know, INPEX could be at risk if there's any belief that the, the government is unstable. So I took that um, advice seriously. Um, Who gave you that uh, advice, Jerry? Um, look, I couldn't remember now. Mm-hmm. Obviously, someone who had some experience in those sorts of dealings with different com- companies, uh, and obviously had dealings with Japanese companies. Was it somebody? In, was it was it someone that worked in government? No, I don't think it was anyone in government. No, I right. think it was someone who just simply because there are always people around that uh, have relationships with. Um, you know, I knew people that have relationship with East Timor. They knew mm. about foreign affairs, you know, I'd say. Mm. They had that sort of background. And they're the ones that gave me that. That person gave me that advice and it always stayed with me. Mm. Um, but in the end, I felt that um, um, I needed to give the government the right to continue to, to operate. Mm. Um, I would give it some certainty. Um, it, certainly um, one, of the, one of the best things for me that came out of that, we developed what we call the Council of Territory Cooperation. So I was the chair and you had, from memory, three ALP and three CLP on that. So it was it was a, a bipartisan um, uh, committee that could look at anything it wanted to look at. It did not have to get approval from the, the government. So it, it, for a long time, was looking at SIHIP, the housing program for Aboriginal communities. We travelled everywhere looking at houses and looking at whether they're good or bad or poorly constructed or and, and looked at the... The, the process that the government, the federal government set up to get those houses built. We're looking at wasted money. We looked at things like um, the Mataranka um, cattle that died. Uh, there was an inquiry, there was a large number of cattle died on Mataranka Station um, and we were inquiring as to why it happened because that, there was a big uproar amongst the community about animal welfare. The university at that time were operating that cattle station. Uh, there were a few other things like domestic violence statistics, um, uh, there was a big blackout in Darwin which lasted for hours and hours and we investigated what happened there and tried to find out what happened. And some of those things were brought forward by the CLP and, and we looked at those things. But the problem the CLP had is that they, the longer they stayed on it, the more they looked like they were you know, being nice and friendly with the government because they were mm-hmm. being part of what was um, developed by the government with, with my help. So they didn't want to be siding too much and eventually they pulled out, which is very sad from my point of view because I think it did a lot of good things and it brought sides of parliament together outside the the nitty, the, the, the hustle and bustle of parliament. You can get a lot done in those committees and you can get information out to people, which is important. So unfortunately that died in the end. Um, the, the, um, the committee didn't continue on. Um, you know, we had some other things we tried... To, to do, um, and I'm just trying to think what they were at the moment. Part of that, uh, part of that um, agreement, but I haven't got it in front of me at the moment. But uh, in the end, um, the government finished its term. Impact started, um, and I stood again. Um, I didn't get as many uh, votes next time, so my vote was up about 60, 
65, 66% of first preferences. It went down to about 54. So I certainly got a hit. One of the things the CLP kept putting up on signs was uh, vote Wood, you vote Labor. So uh, that, no. made, that made it a bit hard. <laughs> um, but we still got through it. And unfortunately, when we when the CLP won, the first thing they did was um, they got rid of a, a lovely lady that worked for me. I had a research lady that was working full time. The government allowed me to have a lady helping me because I needed a lot of work to get around the territory, especially when you got the balance of power. No, um, well, I yeah, they wouldn't let me um, keep that position. And then there was two million dollars at Fred's Pass. One was to get the pool going. And the other was to spend on Fred's Pass Reserve. Uh, that $2 million was immediately pulled straight away. Mm. So I felt that uh, yeah, revenge came swiftly for um, aligning myself there. Can you give us some um, insight, which you obviously has, have given us some then in terms of actions, but life, life as an independent. Um, obviously in Australia we, we tend to have two major parties, um, no different in the territory, or, although can be argued now there's a there's a third one that's popped up. But you know what what is life like as an independent? Because you know, the major parties would have their meetings and their pep talks and their G up sessions, no doubt. But while they're doing that, the independents I don't I don't imagine all gather together and have their own. But you've obviously got to be across the information and, and what's going on. But yeah, how's your life different to, to that of someone in a major party? Well, it's it's free. <laughs> um, it's lonely. It can be stressful. But that freedom is really important. Um, I've been in parliaments where I've been the only independent and I've seen parliaments where I've got seven independents. So sometimes it's very hard to actually have a group of independents that, you know, can get together because they're either left, they've left the CLP or and become independents and then joined the, the Palmer United Party and then left the Palmer United Party and gone become independents again and, and then, you know, and so, you know, you, you could count just about every independent except um, Mark from uh, Nullumboy and um, uh, there's a couple of others, but most of them have been independents via a party. Mm. So I've always felt, I've always sort of been proud of that. I've stayed with what I believed in was an important part of the, the, the democratic, the, the Westminster system. In fact, I travelled uh, a few years ago on my own, economy class, all, <laughs> all the way to Nunavut, which is uh, north, which is a province, a territory in um, northern Canada and up and um, to a capital city called the Karlowit, which is just up near the Arctic Circle, um, and also to Northwest Territories, to Yellowknife, which is the capital there, and both those territories have Westminster system parliaments with no parties. So they wow. are all independents. And I came back saying this is how we should run our parliament. Yeah. But you can't, you're not going to get rid of the parties. They are. You know, they're like Collingwood and, and, and <laughs> Melbourne. So you can't get rid of them, right? They're, they're, yeah. they're stuck with them. But I watch those parliaments. They're not, they've got their, they got their faults. It's not perfect. But it would, to me, it was a breath of fresh air. So I've always felt that there's, an, there's a role for independence. One is to bring uh, a third opinion in. And people say to me, oh, you're sitting on the fence. I said, no, no, you barrack for Holden. He barracks for Ford and I'm barracking for Toyota. Uh, you can have more than one opinion on a job, on, mm. on, a, on, a, on a position, on a, on, a, on a debate. And I think it's important you get that range of topics. And, things, and one of the things I, I worry about in society, people are scared to have another opinion. 
because you're going to get ostracised. You're going to be called names mm. and it doesn't fit in with the popular view of, of the media or popular view of some activist groups. Uh, I think we have a real danger of going backwards with our society if we not don't allow the free freedom to of people to give an opinion. That doesn't mean you're abusive, and I always say that. Abuse is not the, not the same as giving an opinion. Mm. An opinion you should be able to give in a respectful way, but you shouldn't be necessarily ostracised and, and and criticised till you, you, you're so scared to open your mouth again, you just give up. And I think that that's what we've got to be careful with. I use an example in um, my valedictory speech that I said, um, you know, I got brought up in the 50s when communism was a threat from either outside Australia or within inside, especially within the unions at that time. You only have to look at the history of why the Democratic Labor Party actually existed because it was worried that communism was getting in too infiltrate, infiltrating Labor Party uh, to a large extent. So, um, but my concern was that communism was right, as you can see from Hong Kong, um, can limit your right to, for free speech, and also can limit your right to, you know, believe in a, in a in a religion. Um, and I, I do worry that uh, the way the world is going at the moment, we we are getting uh, a sort of subtle form of communism where it is difficult for people to put forward a different point of view. You get laughed at, or you'll you'll get told that you are something with an obia or an ist added to your name mm, just so, because you don't agree. And and and, and uh, you know, I got brought up at, at a Catholic school. I got brought up by a priest that would teach you philosophy, and and that's something we should be teaching at school. You don't have to teach religion necessarily, although people should learn about religions. They don't have to be taught a religion. They should turn. I think we we're missing this idea of opening up people's minds to what some of the great traditions of our society have, and we're losing that because we're only just sitting on our, we're playing games on our on our um, phones and worried about what's on tally or we, we're, mm. we're losing that ability to, to open our minds to things that I think are very important to, for a good democratic society to, to, to be healthy. Mm. Oh, it's just amazing listening to you, Jerry. Uh, you're just, uh, he's singing from the same hymn sheet as me, Pete. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if I closed my eyes, I would have thought I was listening to you. <laughs> uh, it's just, yeah, look, I, look I, I haven't, I'm not, I don't know if that I'm sold on the whole independent thing. I mean, I, I totally agree that there should be independence, no question about it. I'm having trouble trying to figure out in my mind how in a bunch of independence in government with no parties would work in terms of who's the ministers and how, how would you get, you know? Easy, easy. You have to go and see it. And I've always said to people, you know, you'll hear a lot of discussions about, for instance, a lot of discussions about fracking. And I get so annoyed, I say, get off your bums and mm. go over to British Columbia, Ohio, Wyoming, where I went, go and find out. So with, with the idea, I'm not going to cricket you there, by the way, but <laughs> with, with the idea of, that's why I went to northern, northern Canada. Yeah. And I saw in practice, I sat there for two and a half days in Parliament and they have bilingual, they have trilingual because they have French, English and Niktatut, um, uh, which is their language. And they speak mainly in that language and you get you put your earphones on and listen to it all. Um, what they do is they have their big election and they all get together in this big room. They've got a big room there and they all go in there and they talk for three days. And they say, what as a government, that is all of us, what is our plans for the future of our, our territory? So they write all those things down that they want. That is the policy we want our government to follow. So we need a new road. Well, there's no roads in, 
in that part of the world, believe it or not. Here you go by Scooby Doo's or whatever you call it. It's licensed. <laughs> but so, what's, what, 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 are the, what are the things we need for those little communities? Uh, you know, uh, and they've got some very similar issues in the Northern Territory. Alcohol is a major issue. Education is a major issue. Very similar to us, except it's cold. Um, so they sit down for those three days. They work out what the program will be for that three years. Then they they work out who will be ministers. They don't say the ministers will be, so they select a number of ministers. But they then select the chief minister or the, prime, the chief minister, and he will give a portfolios to each one of those ministers. But what you get is that ministership is smaller number than the rest of parliament. So you have a minority government always in. So the, the, the rest of the independents can vote the they, they can vote a minister out. They say we don't we don't agree with that minister. So it works because it's a minority, um, it's not that easy to knock government out in the first place because you have to get enough people with the independents to agree to do it. But it does open it up for a more unified form of parliament. Question time is a lot less rowdy than us. Um, we have it. It's far more gentle, you might say, asking people questions and, and getting answers at the same time. So it, it does work, but it does not not perfect, but certainly works in a small democracy. Can I just ask you, uh, and this is probably treading on some pretty sensitive turf, but, you know, what the hell, corruption yeah. in politics, yeah. right? Uh, what I mean by that is... You know, from time to time, um, you know, you just hear things secondhand, thirdhand about, you know, people missing out on, on you know, uh, being on a particular panel or something like that because they didn't donate to the right party. I mean, does that sort of well, stuff really go on? Well, I think it can influence um whether that's corruption, whether influence is corruption, that's you know your debate. But that's why I've never agreed with the system we have. Um, in in um, Nunavut and Northwest Territories, it's worth looking up how you deal with donations. You can only get forty thousand dollars maximum per donation per person. Here we're we're going down that path to some extent, except we're telling all the CLP, well, each party could lump all that money together. So if you're an independent, you've all of a sudden got a uh, CLP or an ALP with a couple of million dollars or something, who they can use that to sort of spread the word. The independent still got the forty thousand dollars. With an independent group of people, each person's got forty thousand dollars. Must show all the receipts. Must show where their money comes from. Must if they buy a chair, buy a table, have to show the receipts. So you have a very open form of 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 what happens at an election. We've never had that, although it's it's a little bit tighter now than it was. I mean, there has been changes. Um, but I, I certainly would have preferred a limited amount of money. Each individual has to work, do his own job in his own electorate, his or her electorate, uh, not, um, you know, joining the money together with the rest of the CLP. That's your bundle. You spend that in your electorate and show us every bit of money you spent uh, in, in, in that time. And that way you keep it open and you show. And anyone giving donations, they can't give, once you hit 40000 if you want to, you say, well, that money goes to a charity. If I've hit 40000 someone gives me $10,000. So, mate, no, I've already reached my cap, but look, how about you give it to the Salvation Army or something? So they have other ways of doing things. I, I found that, that um, you know, why do we need 
millions of dollars like the Americans do on ad- advertising. In a territory, place like the Territory, you shouldn't need to do too much of that. You should be out and about. You should be in your car, driving around. You should be, you know, doing a lot of that work. And um, so I agree that I don't like the idea of, um, especially I, I moved a motion, I'm, pretty, I'm trying to remember what, when it was, trying to copy the New South Wales legislation, which is no money for uh, developers, mm. um, the gambling industry, the tobacco industry and the alcohol industry. I reckon there's four, those four are the ones where you get the most problems because mm. they're the ones that, that those people in that industry would like governments to have laws which will help them become, you know, bigger and more profitable. Um, and, um, you know, having seen some of the developments in, in the Northern Territory, I'd say, oh, I'd feel a lot more comfortable if there wasn't any money going to any, to any party from any of those groups. So why, why, why wasn't that legislation passed? Um, I, I would have to look back at the reasons. I, I think they just think it's because um, they both got their snouts in the trough. <laughs> um, well, I think there was there, there has been some issues in New South Wales about whether the practicality of some of that. But I'd have to go look at it's a while ago since I introduced it. Uh, I'd have to go back and have a look at the reasons they gave it. But I was fairly disappointed they wouldn't look at it. I'm not saying they said all bad things about it. But I think they got advice that um, they weren't that, that didn't convince them that we should go down that path. But sometimes you see people say, "What can an independent achieve?" Well, I work on it. I might introduce something six years ago. I might reintroduce it a bit later on. And sometimes the government will bring it back in some other form mm-hmm. and do it themselves. In this case, I probably ran out of time, but I'd still <laughs> like to reintroduce it. <laughs> mm. Well, Jerry, I've got a lot of respect for you because the first time I met you was probably around 2005. You may or may not remember it, but it was in Arthur Hamilton's office. Yeah, and, I probably uh, couldn't and, pronounce your name. That was the problem. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, it was, it, the, the issue was stamp duty. And I honestly, I can't remember the exact details of it, but it doesn't matter. But what really impressed me about you, Jerry, was... You didn't, you didn't know the legislation, but you asked me a lot of questions trying to get your head around it so that you could actually understand what the issues were. And, and that really impressed me because stamp duty is not easy to understand at the best of times, uh, you know, let alone trying to explain it to someone in the context of a particular problem. So I, I wish there was more people like you, to be honest. It's probably why I enjoyed being on the estimates committee. <laughs> <laughs> and if it, was, it was funny you say that, but one praise I used to get from many of public service, we liked you, you we liked your questions because they were down to earth. Because <laughs> <laughs> people want to know the nitty gritty about these questions, these things. They don't want to get too complicated. They they want to know you want you want things in plain English so people have an understanding of what's being put forward. And right. that sometimes doesn't happen, unfortunately. I probably could ask you, how come they caught stamp duty? Is it just we don't have many stamps anymore? So. I can, I can, I can tell, I can answer that question with a reasonable amount of precision because I was actually looking at the history of stamp duty the other day um, because of Hamilton. I don't know if you know Hamilton, the uh, the musical. Um, I've got the book in my. I'm halfway through the book. I'm about twelve months behind reading the other half of it. Right. It's a volume. It's a big, thick book. 
Right, yeah. right. Well, if for, the, for, for those people that haven't seen the musical, it's available on uh, Disney Plus, free plug for Disney Plus. But uh, <laughs> it's. Uh, I better it's, finish the book first. <laughs> oh, it's. Uh, well, the book is, is probably just. Is it the one by. Uh, uh, is it, is it Kernow? Or, or I'm trying to think. Um, the author of that book, do you know who it is? It's a thick book. Yeah. It's a big book. <laughs> I've, I've, I've learned a lot about the American War of Independence. It wasn't a pleasant war. Well, it was. I mean, people think that that was fought over um, the tax on tea. Uh, no, no, I mean, it wasn't pleasant because it was a horrible war. Right, People right. certainly died from it. Yeah, that was yes, a terrible war. But uh, it was actually fought over uh, stamp duty, believe it or not. Oh. Well, it, it was tax in general, you know, taxation without representation. But stamp duty was invented by the British um, to raise revenue, and it was done by by issuing a law that you couldn't use paper unless it contained unless it was stamped with the Queen's stamp. So that included, uh, you know, playing cards, writing paper, the whole lot. Anything that was on paper had to have some sort of embossed seal on it. Sounds like um, what, what Mrs. Bouquet would like, you know, that, that, um, that, that, that keeping up appearances person you might see on TV occasionally. Everything has to have the royal insignia. That's you know. it. So that's exactly what happened. And so uh, that was the only paper that was authorised to be used. And obviously in order to buy that paper, you were taxed a certain amount of money. And that's why it was called stamp duty because it had to contain the stamp on it. Oh, mm. see there. I've learned something tonight. That's yes. all right. Uh, it's still so, a rip-off. Yeah, well, <laughs> and it's continued to this day. But, Jerry, I, yeah. I, I wanted to ask yeah. you a very important question, but you go ahead first. I was just going to say, you know how you said taxation without representation? Yes. I have put that to the people down on um, the waterfront. Right. They should, they should also ask for that. They get taxed. They don't have any democratic re- representation. I've had people come yeah. to see me. Yeah. They, they don't have a, um, a vote. They don't have a council. They have a representative body, but they don't have a clear, like a ratepayers have a vote. Yeah. Down there, oh. they're one area that they pay money, but they don't have a vote. So right. I've always said that should, that, that should change that. Yeah. Right. Mm. Yeah. So <laughs> the, the question that I've got for you is um, we know that Terry Mills recently did a backflip on, on – um, on fracking, and he may very well be doing a front flip as we speak in relation to it. <laughs> what, what, I, what I've been reading in the paper recently, um, you actually, as you do almost with everything, it seems, Jerry, you actually took the trouble to go to Wyoming to have a look at fracking. What did you what What did you come away with? Well, I did two trips. First trip was to Roma. A lot of people don't understand that. Um, uh, there is coal seam gas, and coal seam gas is generally not extracted by fracking. It's, it's, it's just the removal of water from the coal seam, which allows the gas to escape because held under pressure. And that water can be recycled and used on farms as it was when I, I watched, looked uh, around that Maranoa area. So I went there, one is to say to people, don't start quoting that part of the world uh, because you're really not quoting the same thing as in the Northern Territory. So I decided then, look, I needed to really, you know, um, find out what was going on. I actually went on a trip for two reasons. One is I'm a fan of hydrogen. I've been to Europe. I've been to Hanover Messe, um, which is a big exhibition in, in Germany, which I tell every kid, any kid studying, 
physics, chemistry, mathematics should be going to that place every year. But I went there uh, along with some other things I did on that trip um, to mainly look at hydrogen and look at where it, it, how far it was advancing. And they had hydrogen cars there that filled up in less than five minutes and travelled around the, the yard there. So when I went to America, I went to Las Vegas first. They had a battery solar hydrogen conference at that big um, convention centre where the bloke shot all those people in the car park. Wow. Luckily, I was living away from there, but I was only there a few weeks before that, that happened. Mm-hmm. So um, I, um, I was just, I'm still fascinated the amount of technology that's going into hydrogen. So batteries and hydrogen can work together. You'll always need batteries. You've got to keep your lights on the car. You don't want to start your motor just to have the lights going if you need to turn the light on the car. So batteries have always got a, a use. But um, uh, I, I then, after being in the, in the conference for a few days, I travelled to Wyoming. And Wyoming I picked because it's um, more like the Territory, uh, wide open spaces, relatively small population compared to the rest of America, I think maybe three or 400,000 people, you know, in relation to America, that's about probably a bit like we are. Um, beautiful part of the world and had to learn how to drive on the wrong side of the road. <laughs> um, and so I just did up an itinerary before I left. I rang people, wrote to them and got the itinerary and um, I met a whole range of people, especially people who been in oil and gas and especially people who had an environmental background. They knew the engineering and they knew the environmental side of things. And uh, so I travelled to Wyoming, I travelled to Ohio, I could have gone to Pennsylvania, but Ohio and Pennsylvania are on the Appalachians and that's an area where fracking has been going or gas has been taken out of the ground for many, many years. Um, And then I went to British Columbia and the advantage of going to British Columbia was that it's got a, um, it's less complicated from the point of ownership of the land. So in America, the Indians can own the land, the government can own the land, private people can own the land then the government might own some of the gas, private company might own some of the gas, the Indian people might own some of the gas. There's a whole range of people that own things in there. So you don't just drill a hole and the, and the, and the company gets the gas. They'll get the gas, but they have to do an arrangement with whoever owns the land above it or whoever owns the gas. So they're a little bit more complicated than us. But everywhere I went there, and especially in Ohio and British Columbia, Ohio people I met, I spoke to them for two and a half hours in their office. It's a... Uh, we, they just deal with oil and gas and the environmental protection area of that. And uh, and one bloke said to me there, and I've got him in my, I, you know, I did a 56-page report which I handed out to everybody in my electorate. He just said, look, if half the things that the anti-frackers said to me were true, I'd give up this job and go and join them. And he said, that's not the case. That mm. isn't the case. And when you sit down with people who know what they're talking about, they're not dills, they're, they're dinky-dye scientists and, and got a lot of practical background. And they said, we've never, ever polluted any water resource in, in Ohio, never. And you sort of you hear these stories and that. And that's not to say there's not been problems. There certainly has been problems, but there's always problems in mining. We don't stop mining for iron ore. We don't stop mining for manganese and gold and that because we've got some problems. We try and get around those. Uh, British Columbia, they've got a similar system to us in the sense of ownership of land because it's British or was British. So, And they had some really great people. They interviewed me like. I was up in northern British Columbia and they do a television hookup with the, with the boss of that department who's in uh, Vancouver. And so I, I, I know they, they certainly made an effort to give me all the information I needed. And British Columbia, I must admit, one of the most beautiful parts of the world. Uh, yeah. So 
I learned a lot from that trip. I wrote back, I, I put in my report a whole lot of websites that people could connect to. I actually met one of the people. There's an anti-fracking film that came out, and I can't remember its name. It was shown on television here. And I met the bloke called Lewis Meeks, and I can go a whole story about how I eventually found him. I was looking for another fellow that came out to Australia called John, I can't think of his name, John Manton, that might be the name. He came out to Australia and met me. He met me with a group of people called the, I think it was Lock the Gate came to see me. And I said, well, if any time I get back to America, I'll come and see you. So I tried to come and see him. I couldn't contact him. I left him an email. I rang. They said he's not around. But they said, go and see Lewis Meeks. Lewis Meeks is our Vietnam veteran. Anyway, I eventually found him on a Sunday, drizzly day, and I went back to Wyoming. I had to call him at the local church there on the Sunday because I knew I know, didn't know where he was. It's one of those old churches you see with the tall steeples, very much American style. And I, they said, well, pop around the back. People are having a cup of tea and, a, and something to eat, oh, probably a coffee, um, after the church service. And I popped in there and I said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you, you follow us and we'll take you around there. I mean, they're so friendly. So I followed them around these dirt roads and eventually found his place, uh, knocked on the door, couldn't get him, and then eventually he did come out and said, I said who I was and he brought me in the house, had a good cup of coffee, and I found out that his complaint was he had gas in the water. And the part of the reason is because it's an area where there's the gas is fairly high above the, the grounds. It's up towards the water area. He wasn't talking about chemicals. He was talking about gas. And because... So a lot of the argument we had about fracking is about chemicals that they use to create fracking is getting into the water. Well, my understanding, I had to smell the gas. Even with my flu I had, you could smell the, like a petroleum in the, in, the, in the water. So you certainly had an issue there, and, and, and that gets more complicated when you start to talk to the people, the scientists, and they say, you know, why these things might have occurred. But um, so I got a, a, certainly a good background after a lot of discussions with a lot of people, townsfolk, oil, oil companies. Um, found out why some some of the country looks so terrible, like spiderweb. You see holes everywhere. Um, and that's being reduced because that's why hydraulic fracturing goes out. So you have one set of wellheads all close together so you don't destroy the top surface, like having one well here, one well there, one well there. So that's, that's reduced that impact. Um, but, you know, I just, I just get annoyed that... Um, People haven't tried to go out and have a look. Um, they've just based a lot of the stuff on ideology. Uh, we don't like oil, gas or coal. Now, I'm not saying I love them. I've been to Spain and looked at solar thermal. I've been to Newcastle and looked at some of the great work CSIRO are doing. But you've still got to have your mind open enough to see what technology is around at the moment. And there's people making statements which I think are simply not based on any knowledge. They're just based on sort of well, either politics in the sense that this could get me a few votes or um, what one particular group said. And um, I get worried that some of these groups also take advantage of people who don't have the knowledge um, and, the, and they use them for their own benefits. And I noticed Seed, for instance, um, might be getting into bed. Oh, don't put that, that might sound, that might be a bit too hard. <laughs> they're getting, um, uh, they're trying to get onto some of the work that the Electoral Commission is doing about encouraging people to vote. It was in the paper, I think, yesterday. Now, I've read some of the seed documents and they claim they represent some Aboriginal people, young people, and I think some of the stuff is just rubbish, absolute rubbish. Mm. And so they'll yeah. said, spread that word out and tell people this is, this is what's happening and so those people who don't hear the other side or are not uh, able to hear the other side 
um, will believe that's the truth. So yeah, it's fracking a is a very emotive issue. It's a problem in society and Leon's constantly um, uh, keeping me honest from that point of view is that uh, unfortunately a, a, a huge section of the community now pretty much believe everything they see or read. So social media becomes a news source and the rubbish that gets pushed through there could be true, it could be untrue, it could be made up, it could be factual, you'd never know. But, but people will often just believe it because they see it written or they see a video about it. It becomes fact. Well, that's why I don't have Facebook. So I've had five elections and I've won with a chook. And a newsletter that goes out three times a year. So all my trips get reported on and they go out to people. But Jerry, I, I think if you, yep, sorry. Um, I, I just wanted to go back to the fracking. So you, you've done this, uh, you know, if I had any doubts about fracking, I, you, you know, you certainly have done a lot to convince me that it's a good thing. Um, did you feel that Labor was right um, to have the Rachel Pepper inquiry? I think if I was being, putting a political hat on, they probably did the right thing. No. They were... They were a bit shaky because there was the Hawk inquiry. There were two Hawk inquiries. I think there was part one and part two. There was also that lady from Aberdeen University who did a report on the Hawk inquiry. Uh, I can't think of her name. She came out of the University of Queensland. But at that time, that was getting towards the end of the Giles government period, and that's where that one well was given approval. And I had Alison Anderson talking to me. She was in the yes, no, I'm not sure about this issue when it was going to the vote. So they were interesting times right at the end of the Giles government period over fracking. Um, I, um, um, I just lost my train of thought there, sorry. What no, was it? I, I was asking you whether you thought that having the inquiry, uh, the Rachel Pepper inquiry, Justice Pepper yeah. inquiry was well, the right it, thing. I think that, that Labor didn't accept the Hawke inquiry. I think they, you know, they just didn't seem to accept it. But I think that they, what they did, I suppose in one way is clever, they knew there were people opposing it and they thought, well, the best way to shut that up for a while is we'll have a full-blown inquiry. So they had a full-blown inquiry. The problem they had by having it for so long is that they held up the possibility of the industry going ahead. But, look, I'm not going to knock that uh, anybody that puts forward um, recommendations that make sure that fracking doesn't affect the environment. Um, I think we've got to sort of get a bit of sense into this discussion. Nothing you do... Is, is not going, is going to be risk-free. That's just a stupid mm. stupid mm. sort of analogy that people use sometimes. Oh, well, yeah, it could happen. Well, the, the concern that most people have had is not about the science to some extent, it's about what they believe was a weakness in government departments in policing uh, mining. Mm. And you only have to, and I understand why people would be like that, because you only have to look at Mount Todd. Um, there's a couple of other mines, one in Mount Banban Station. Um, there's a couple of other mines, uh, one up there near, um, right on the border of West, uh, Queensland and uh, uh, Northern Territory, uh, west of, east of Borrelula. Um, so there's a number of mines that have really not been well managed and you have to wonder whether the department itself was strong enough uh, when those mines were being developed to make sure that there was a good bond. So if something went wrong, you, could, you know, the, 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 the company paid for the, for the um, uh, restoration of the mine because um, we've had to pay lots of money to restore some of those areas since. So I think that 
that you have on one hand people who are just ideologically against it. Uh, there'll be people that also, even though they might support it, are concerned that government is not strong enough when controlling some of these issues. Now, certainly things have changed. You've got um, uh, the independent person looking at it, um, Dr Ritchie, who is monitoring the recommendations and making sure the government, uh, the, the companies are doing what the recommendations said. Um, so you also have the EPA and you also have the department. So you would hope there's enough people there um, looking at those issues. One of the good things I found, like um, in Ohio, for instance, you know, people could say this costs us a lot of money and that's probably where some of this discussion coming from the Australian Institute, who I think is a, you know, just an offshoot of the Greens, um, is coming from because in Ohio, every time you do something, and same in Wyoming, you have to have a licence to drill the hole. So you've got to have a ticket. You pay money for that. When you pour the concrete and all that, that's all got to be inspected like a building. Same like you get a building in Darwin, you've got to inspect the floor, inspect this, the walls. They all have to pay for those things to that department. That's what keeps the money, keeps people being paid. And that's what I think should happen in the Territory. I don't know whether it does. Um, I don't think, you know, we, we should be paying a lot of money to monitor it. The monitoring should be done by money that comes from the industry into the department. Uh, that's not making them uh, being paid for by the oil company. It's being paid to the government uh, for to make sure the regulations are carried out properly. Um, so, look, it did hold things up. There's no doubt about it. And it probably allowed groups like Lock the Gate and Seed to get a wriggle on. Um, but in the end, I'll, I'll give Justice Pepper. She knew that there were people pushing hard not to allow this to happen. And I sat at one of the forums in Darwin and I found it quite upsetting that I had to sit next to people who kept putting Lock the Gate stickers around the, the table. I said, I've come here to listen to a, a, a an independent group talk about the, the pluses and minuses. And that, you know, you get Aboriginal people, you get other people pushing that all the time. And that's not opening it up for a reasonable debate. That's opening it up for someone who's already made up their mind. They're not going to listen to the discussion. And there were scientists in there that knew all about how holes should be drilled in the ground, how you protect the water, the science behind water being held in the ground, et cetera, et cetera, the chemicals being used, the processes. When you get people that have a very little education, especially in, even if they do have an education but not an education in the sciences, um, then you're struggling sometimes to have a reasonable debate. If you've made up your mind, if people see this as a, uh, an opportunity to, to get on a horse, um, that, that's what happens. And unfortunately, the, the, um, the fracking debate certainly is, it can get one-sided at times. But I say to people, I gave out just over 3,000 reports. My, and my report wasn't a scientific report. My report is from day one to when I came home. So I said I hopped in a plane and flew there, 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 and I told people where I've been. But I included all where I had been and the places I looked at and the people I spoke to, and, and, and I got extracts from different um, uh, quote, uh, magazines and things that were books that I that I'd studied on the issue. I probably got about three people responded to that and said we don't agree. Mm. So about three thousand people were able to read where they read it all. Don't know. Put plenty of pictures in there. Make sure that you know, wasn't too boring. But I didn't get a back, bad reaction at all. So I think if people get the good information given to them. Um, then you've got a better chance of getting a reasonable outcome. Okay. So having regard to all of that, 
What's your view on Terry's backflip on fracking? Well, it's funny that I was standing in Parliament the last sittings and we were discussing um, sustainable development was part of a, there was a, a bill going through, it was a planning bill, that's right, and part of one of the, one of the clauses in the planning document is sustainable development and I'm a fan of sustainable development. For me, it's we do something today that doesn't cost the future generation millions to fix up because we didn't do it right in the first place. But I just came in, I had to do a radio uh, TV interview and I just came in at the end of the, I think it might have been Jeff Collins, it might have been Terry saying, you know, we don't support you know, fracking, I nearly fell over. So that's where I said, well, I think you both need to get off your bums here because this just sounds like you're just making, you know, just making this decision for political reasons. Go and have a look. Go and have a look. Um, and for me, it just looks like it was an opportunity to get a few more votes that from people that uh, might not be labour orientated, but they might be, I don't know, they might be sort of not sure where they stand on this issue. And now Terry's come along as the great white knight and said, well, it's terrible. And then he said, it's not quite as terrible as I said it was in the first place. Um, it, I, just the people I speak to think that was a very poor decision. Um, oh, yes. And it just seemed to be based on expediency rather than, you know, 12 months of, of, of research. You know, it's a bit like I, I sure, probably shouldn't raise this. You're going on a long time. You would have seen that cotton ad in the paper the other day, Dead Fish. The Environment Centre put it in the paper the other day. I was involved because when I joined Parliament, they did a cotton trial in Catherine, GM Cotton, and I was very interested. I went down to have a look at it. I went also to Narrabri because we had people in Labor who was absolutely opposed to cotton, even though they were going to allow the cotton trials to go ahead. So I went to Narrabri, I went to southern Queensland, and that's, what, 14, 15 years ago, maybe longer than that. And you think you're in another world compared to what people talk about. Even then, where the problems occurred, it had changed so much. It had changed so much. It restricted on the water. It restricted on where water, water couldn't go back into the rivers anymore. It had to be recycled. Are using GM cotton, so one spray. Kununurra is the same. I've been to Kununurra. Kununurra was a problem. They used to allow the fertilizer to go in the river. Um, in the territory, you do it under pivot irrigation. You don't use it under fire irrigation. There's so many changes, uh, and yet you see this ad, and I said, this is just so out of date, and so it's actually just dishonest. That's not the way cotton has grown anymore. It might have been 30 years ago, and so I just get so annoyed. I wrote a letter to the paper last Friday. I haven't seen it. It might not get published because I've had a go at the media lately. Bad <laughs> <laughs> <Our> bias. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, so it's, it's, it's so interesting, Jerry, because, um, you know, we had Robin Lambley on the podcast uh, also recently, and we put that to Robin, you know, like you, you're, you're a CLP, uh, you know, you were with the CLP, a very strong CLP supporter, and you left uh, for various reasons. You went out, became an independent, but you still have quite conservative values. Uh, why? You know, what's your position on on fracking? And and to our surprise, she said, "Well, I, you know, I, I didn't really like it, but I went along with it." Uh, so I, you know, I just find this whole debate. Well, I think the, I think Alice Springs is a bit of a. You know, it's an, it's an unusual part of the world. You know, every time there's a mine, it looks like it's going to be within 
close proximity to Alice Springs is usually a protest or two. So I think to some extent she's perhaps reflecting what she felt with her, some of the way some of her electorate might think. Um, you know, they tried to start up a uranium mine some years ago and that was not saying it was going to work, but I know it was it was certainly going to run into a fair bit of opposition. So, um, yeah, I just think that she was, um, you know, I can't speak for her, but I just felt she was, she was un- ner- she was nervous about the vote in relation to fracking in her area, which I can understand, not not necessary, but that's why I think she was a bit um, ambivalent to what she might have been if she'd uh, had a safer seat, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, no, no. I know, I've always actually known that she's been like not that clear on supporting or not supporting. But that's why I felt like, well, go. Don't just sit. Still in Alice Springs, get on a plane and go and see where it's been operating for 20 or 30 years, longer than that. In Ohio, it's been operating for 100 years where they said they used to drop a stick of jelly night down the hole and that was fracking. Um, not the method used today, but um, yeah. Used to fish that so, way too, I think. That's right, yeah, easier, quicker. That's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that, that's, that, that to me is the, the, I don't mind them having a different view, really. That's their right. Mm. But go and have that view based on, some knowledge, not just on based on, well, this might be a good way to get a few more votes. Uh, Pete, I know you're going to ask a question, so maybe you go first and then I'm going to ask you a question. Ask me a question? Yes, I am. Okay. Do you want to do that on fracking? Because I'm going to pivot. Uh, no, it's not on fracking. Okay. Okay. Mm. Jerry, you, you talk about healthy debate and you talk about... Um, you know, listening to your electorate and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, we, were you involved at all with the pet laws that were uh, created some months ago now? You mean the ones about whether you could have a, um, a – whether someone had the right to have an animal in their units? Yeah. Or, yeah. Uh, yeah, I was. I didn't agree with it. Brilliant. Because, because – sorry, yeah, tell us why. Well – we have a thing called the scrutiny committee, so I do read their reports, yeah. and the scrutiny, <laughs> scrutiny and their scrutiny committee comes up. This is a labor labor dominated scrutiny committee. So the scrutiny committee comes up and says, "Look, we've heard what the real estate people said and the other people have said, and said, well, look, and, and you've got to remember that fifty percent of people who live in rented houses live in um, uh, government accommodation, and government accommodation does allow certain things already. Mm. So then." When it comes to, I think, is it units, we got a unit title, you can make laws already about that. So the number of people that would be covered by this rule is very few. And if you and at the moment, while we've got plenty of houses spare to rent, if you don't like what that landlord says, you can go and find another landlord. In, but in the end, the scrutiny committee, I think it's recommendation one, gave all the reasons, gave all the quotes, said, don't change the legislation. Hmm. And I read it. I was reading it, and I thought, well, that actually makes sense when you when you read it properly and say well, that makes sense. It's like making some law that really doesn't. It's got such a minor problem. It's not worth changing the law for it. But they did, and I know I got into trouble in Parliament when I said Nariak Kit resigned from the scrutiny committee because the government basically told <laughs> overrode all the recommendations. And uh, they said, oh, no, you can't say that. I, Natasha Files got up and said, withdraw that. I probably should have said, what am I withdrawing that's wrong? 
But anyway, <laughs> we have, we understand that she resigned because of that. Oh, Naria Kit resigned as the chair of the scrutiny committee. Oh, I see, I see. Right, okay. Peter, uh, Tony Sievers is now the chair. Right. Yeah. So, well, you know, those are the sort of shenanigans that go on. You know, that really just erode the public's confidence in Parliament, yeah. in politicians. Not that it's high at any, any time in any event, you know, but it just just damages credibility. It's like a death by a thousand cuts, Jerry. Well, it's probably I, I had a fairly long speech, so I cut it short for my validity. One of the areas was good governance for this government. I said... Your government is similar to Giles' government. I went, oh, I said, yeah, yours is quiet. Theirs is noisy. I said, mm. when it came to good governance, uh, look, and I'll give an example and people don't have to agree with me, but the, the classic was we start off at the beginning of our parliament saying we're bringing parliament to the people and we'll have a, a committee set up to, find, to bring in recommendations how we can bring parliament closer to the people. One of those things is we'll have committees look at all legislation. I said, great. I've been to Queensland actually in the last government and had a look at this processes there. And the committee went over to Queensland as well before it made that recommendation. So along comes the RU486 bill, the one for abortion pill. So people know that I don't agree with abortion. That's, that, that's by and by. That's not, that's not the issue here. Well, I said, um, so you're going to send this. This is a fairly important bill and, and Aboriginal people should at least be able to have a say about this. You're going to send it off to a committee. All right. So I moved a motion. I said, and I hoped it would be a conscience vote, but no, it didn't happen. I said, I move that this goes to a committee. It's a pretty important debate. Um, no. So the minister also said, well, we're going to have your have the have your say side. This has happened a couple of times, Natasha Files especially. So we asked, well, can we see what people are putting in the have your say side so we know what people are saying? No. I said, well, I'm an MLA. How am I supposed to know what people are saying if you don't let me? Oh, no, they, 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 uh, unless they say they don't want it printed and that, and we'd have to send it back to them and say, you, you allow your name to be put to this, we won't release it. Now, contrast this with the Pepper Inquiry. Have a read of the back pages. They're all the people that put their, their names down for something. Have a look for, there's another inquiry I think that uh, Gunner did. Can't think what it was. might have been about alcohol. All the, all the ha people that put their suggestions in the Have Your Say site, you could read what they said. So Natasha did this one. She Same on prostitution. She had a Have Your Say site and you weren't allowed to read what was in the Have Your Say site. I said, but I'm an MLA. <laughs> Surely, what's the point in having a Have Your Say site if you can't see what's in the Have Your Say site? <laughs> so she said, I'll send you out a, a summary. So she did a summary and I heard, and some people who had been contacting me because they were concerned about it, they were, they were against the bill, they said, but, we, we wrote against it and it's not mentioned in the summary as if, like, everyone agreed with it or something. So you've got this, you've got this layer of um, pretense that we are opening up Parliament to the people. We're not going to send it to committee. We don't want to hear what Aboriginal people have to, a view about this. Other things, they'll go out to the Aboriginal people, probably if they think that, that they'll win some brownie votes. Mm. Um, and then not to have you, the, to allow you to have... have do they have your say or hear what was on the have your say site? But yeah, there were a number of issues, and then and to me, that was one of the first examples to me of lack of the ability to get in depth what the government was trying to do. Now, so for instance, with that bill, um, I just said to them, 
Well, first of all, you've taken out away the right of a doctor to have a conscientious objection. Now, again, people can have a different point of view. But up till now, a doctor did not, didn't want to agree with abortion. He wasn't even required to send a person off to another doctor that supported abortion. It was a bit like, I don't want to kill you, but I'll go and send you over to a bloke. Uh, I don't know. I don't want to shoot that person, but I'll send you to me, mate. Who will do the job for you? Um, the same sort of logic. So there were things there that needed a lot more depth to discuss. You just don't get that. And, the, and what I got a lot of time, especially from Natasha, was I answered that question. See, we had the gender debate, gender debate, and in the gender document it says you have the right to change, I think, your, your age or something in sex and gender. So I just asked one of the basic questions. I said, well, how can you change your sex? According to the federal government, it's chromosomal. You can't change that. Oh, that's got nothing to do with the bill. I said, yes, it has. It's in the bill. We're here to discuss the bill. Uh, now, and, and try and ask the question again. I've answered that question. So that's the politics. <laughs> the thing that disappoints me is the depth to try and find out, well, what's behind your change? What's the philosophy behind the change in this, uh, in this legislation? Mm. Now, why it's, do you it's, agree it's really, with it, it, It's really laziness, really, at the end of the day, isn't it? It's intellectually, intellectual laziness. It's not wanting to do the, the necessary work to be able to explain your position. Yeah. And I don't mind people having a I don't know people have a different position than me, but I just feel we're in Parliament. <laughs> it's a, I keep thinking of the Romans standing in their, in their white togas, you know, getting up to <laughs> debate. That was the, the history of democracy, even in Greece. Why aren't we having good philosophical discussion about serious issues? Because we've got 15 people who are passing serious changes to our society. I call it social engineering, but they are changing our society. Um, we asked that we look at um, a different form regarding prostitution, the Nordic model, and it's in France, it's in Norway, it's in Iceland, it's in Canada. It, it was an opportunity to have a look at an alternative. Would we go overseas? No. Would we look at it? No. This is the only thing we're going to do. I even said in Parliament, I asked a question about this sleazy profession. Natasha got up and said, ask me to withdraw the word sleazy. So much for <laughs> She obviously hasn't got onto some German websites. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you know, I go, it's the, it, to me, it's, that's why I said it's a bit like Giles, which was least got out there and, you know, went a bit crazy at times. At least you could hear him. Here it's sort of a subtle way of doing things. We're doing it through, you know, the correct procedure, but the procedure was very shallow. Yeah. Anyway, well, that's just... well, Jerry. I mean, there's so much more I want to talk to you about, but I'm gonna I'm going to start to wind it up unless Pete's going to come in with some fantastic yeah. questions. Yeah. Um, one of my dogs just came around for a pet there. So. <laughs> I got one last one. I, 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 are you going? Uh, well, I'll ask mine, then you can you ask yours. Right, yeah, right. please. So we can't let you go, Jerry without raising this issue, which I must admit I've never had a conversation with you about, but I distinctly remember Paul Henderson making a comment about this in 2011, give or take, uh, and then our own, uh, well, not our own, but uh, our, our weekend uh, podcaster, Chris Walt from The Independent, specifically yep. asked us to ask you this question when he knew that we were going to interview you on the podcast. <laughs> and um, 
he referred to it as the gerometer, and uh, Hendo referred to it, if I recall correctly, as woo 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 woo. <laughs> so, it's just a Jerry Jerry meter. Yes, the Jerry meter. <laughs> <laughs> What's to go well, with all of this, Jerry? I I don't. I well, mean, I, I, I normally get up. I I get up about half past five and go for a walk and a run, and right. I'm coming back about this time of year. So. Um, the sun is slowly coming up, so one side is a little bit lighter and over towards Palmerston is dark and I'm just walking along and I see this black object like a pencil, fairly thick, right. just shooting across, no sound. I, uh, it was happening so quickly. I think there might have been a small light at the front, but I can't say that for sure. But it just went across and I thought, gee, people in Palmerston will see that going over. It's not very high off the ground. Well. It wasn't that low, but it's not way up where main aeroplanes fly. I thought, well, someone will ring up and say something about it. Nothing. So, so I rang the ABC. I said, I just saw something fly across the sky. Didn't seem to make any noise, but it was moving along at a good speed. And uh, so from there, and I actually saw another object one morning. Um, it was a light. This is about half past six as well. It could have been a plane, but if it was a plane, the, the, the pilot was obviously drunk because of the front light was all over the place. It was wobbling and coming towards, coming northwards, and then it flew away, moved away, so I didn't see it anymore. But I didn't carry a, a phone on me, so I didn't get any photos of this. But um, when I mentioned it, um, there was a cartoon in the Melbourne Age, and that cartoon had a, a chook flying past <laughs> high in the sky. <laughs> and it had ALP written on the chook. Uh, <laughs> So I ended up getting a reputation for seeing UFOs. I haven't seen any more since, by the way. I do get up in the morning and still look around. But um, the, 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 the NT News, and I've got the copy somewhere, says, oh, Jerry Wood, because you know, he's such a good bloke. Yeah, yeah, righto. Um, we, we think that anyone who's, you know, we trust him that he has really seen a UFO. So now things are done according to the Jerry meter. So if it's only just a little thing that someone, it's a bit dubious, it might be one. <laughs> two on the Jerry meter. But if it's definite, it's a 10. So that's where it came from. Right. Yeah, so, also, that's by funny. the way, I've got a Where's Jerry cartoon. You know how you got Where's Wally? Yes. Wiki, Wiki's done one for me. Where's Jerry? I'm in there. You've got to look for it. Yeah. <laughs> so I've had some good times with cartoons. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's where it's come from. Well, I don't like to hit you with a serious question uh, on the back of that, but. That's right. um, Again, just having a look into uh, a few of the things that you've been involved with over the years, Jerry, and this this is only from a couple of years ago, but um, we had John Elfrink on the podcast some months ago now, and uh, John was more or less saying to us that it was a done deal in in terms of it was uh, unavoidable that the uh, the Territory and South Australia at some point will need to merge. I know you were uh, at least optimistic about looking into that. Could could you talk about that and your thoughts on it? It's funny. I've got a map, a, de- a proper map, from the period when we were combined. Uh, that so South Australia and North, Northern Australia were one. One. Look, the only reason I said it because I'm a proud Territorian, really. You know, I don't not particularly wrapped in being joined up with South Australia, but um, I was looking at the finances and thinking, well, when we get a percentage of the GST, we get it 
based on a small population. Whether it's better to um, increase our population by being part of something else, um, um, would it make a difference financially if we actually were one state again? Um, I mean, you could get a reduction in government. That's to start with. Hmm. You'd only possibly say to that the parliament would sit uh, one month in Adelaide and one month in Darwin or do something like that, so it would be a combined parliament. Um, it, uh, you, you, you may be better off for smaller communities because one thing with the GS, with um, local government in the Territory, we are well and truly left out of the lurch when it comes to funding local government because local government is funded by our population and so our councils have a smaller population. So their hunk of the pie uh, for um, is also related to a percentage of the total the state gets. It's it's a bit complicated, but I know I used to look at the, the shire around um, Bacchus Marsh, I think, in, or Ararat in Victoria. It was nearly the same as Litchfield. But they got heaps more money, heaps more money than Litchfield, and that's the way the Commonwealth divvy out the money when it comes to local government. So whether it was better to belong to a larger state to actually um, help those smaller areas of the territory get more money. I don't know. Look, it was it was partly tongue in cheek. It was partly serious because at that time we were looking like going down the tube. And to some extent, you could ask, are we still going down the tube? <laughs> at that stage, yeah. it was looking like now it is. We are. <laughs> so right. yeah, look, it, it look it, it's again like a lot of things. Put the issue out there for discussion. Mm. It's not the end of the world. Um, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But um, at least it throws an idea out there that uh, at least it should be investigated. Uh, Mr. Speaker, one supplementary question. Uh, You've got three minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You mentioned the word finances. Do you know anything that uh, the opposition parties don't know about? Are you privy to information as to the actual state of the finances? Uh, Well, it'd be nice if we had a budget, um, and I'd probably be able to tell you. But mm. the problem is that, uh, and as I said, the Territory must not be allowed to go to an election without the government clearly stating what the state of the economy is now. Not necessarily it has to go to, say, the same depth you'd expect when there's an estimates committee and that. But we really need to know how much money we're in debt. Mm. Where did you get the money that you've spent to help boost small business and tourism, whatever? Where did you get that money from? Um, how are you going to repay it? So what's your long-term plan? Is it going to be a 20-year plan? Are you going to raise taxes? And I said today on the radio, well, we might have to suffer some pain and spread that pain over the whole of the Territory. Um, you know, I don't know what it would be. We might bump the, you know, this discussion about land tax. Well, I mean, it's dreadful in the Territory, but there's been talk about swapping, I think, stamp duty. Um, Leo, might be, Leo might be able to tell me whether I'm right and having a land tax. So, you know, States would be able to have a, 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 an income that was coming all the time and that was fairly able to be budgeted for. I'm not necessarily advocating for that because I own five acres, but I want to pay land tax for. But I suppose the, the issue is um, if we have got ourselves into debt and we've got further in debt because we needed to do something to benefit the health of the Territory, should we as a community be willing to pay a bit more to get that, bring that debt under control? And I think that's a reasonable question. But the government before the election has to come forward and say, this is the state of the economy, this is where we are. And without that, then I think it'll be a bit of a phony election. 
So, Jerry, in, in retirement, um, are you? Because uh, I'm just thinking as you were speaking, I was thinking to myself, you were in the class before Claire Martin abolished um, the generous superannuation entitlement. So you'd be uh, you'd be able to take advantage of that. Yeah, I'm the last. Yeah, the last. I'm the last. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I say to people, I spent I spent a long time out bush with no super yeah. or super that didn't really exist when you had those companies that you might have remembered went out bush on Aboriginal communities and offered the world. Oh gosh. And yeah. Um, yeah, they were super. I'm one of those companies that said, "This is how much you learn." I reckon I would have been lucky when I finished that, that put a couple of thousand dollars away, because right. by the time they changed, some companies were sold off to other companies. Then they ended up with people like MLC and AMP, and some of those for small people, the administration costs just ate away. Yeah. Um, so there's a fair bit of time I didn't have anything put away, so I certainly it helped, and. Um, I've certainly got a fairly big family on one side of my my family that needs looking after. You've got an Aboriginal family. Um, yes, uh, Pop, I need a car. Sister-in-law, they can't get out bush without a car. So it's not uh, anything I'll be sitting on uh, if I can help people with it. And, I mean, I haven't worked out what even I'm going to get. Um, I was going to ask you that. Because <laughs> well, I was thinking it must be some sort of... <laughs> I get a pension and a lump sum and how yeah. that's worked out, that's got to be, still be worked out. So, yeah. Um, I mean, look, I, I've got nothing against it, Jerry. To tell you the truth, I'm completely for it. I mean, you spent well, 20, made, yeah. you spent 20 yeah. years in Parliament, right? Yeah. Uh, you worked your tail off. It does, you, wear, it does wear you out. Yeah. You know, mm. and, uh, you, you know and, and one of the problems I think we're having these days is we're paying peanuts. And we're seeing the results of that because we don't Absolutely. seem to get the quality of politician in there that are willing to do the kind of work that you've been doing. Uh, willing well, we're not to attracting ask business. Yeah, we're not attracting business people. We're not attracting people who've got an agricultural background or a mining background. We need people that have got some. They've got. They've got some mud on their boots. You know, dirt in their fingernails. They know. You know what the territory's like. There's a lot of theorists in this part of the world <laughs> who probably never passed the Berrimah line. But, um, you know, you need people with, with a, a good understanding. I'm not an economist, but I have a reasonably un- good understanding of agriculture because it's, you know, part of my background. So, yeah, trying to get people in that are not just teachers and lawyers, and I'm not saying teachers and lawyers shouldn't be there, but there needs to be other professions, people from banking. So you've got good people that are in treasury. So... Um, yeah, trying to attract um, is, is certainly difficult when a lot of those people can get a lot more money being outside Parliament. It's particularly, you know, well, it's particularly irritating to have people that are, are what Hendo calls warriors, you know, the ones that are, have worked in politicians' offices and then that's how they climbed up through the ranks and then, you know, they get their gear go and, they get elected. I mean, there's just no real diversity or, yeah, or life experience. Think, yeah. yeah, well, I had the advantage of living amongst Aboriginal people on the ground, literally. You know, work day by day with them weeding sweet potato or picking um, watermelons or tomatoes or looking after the pumpkins and then going bush with them um, and marrying one, of course. But I've always felt that that was the best thing I ever did. And people have these courses they day, what do they call them? Cultural. I don't know. You, go to, you can't go. Yeah, 
go out there with an open mind and go and talk to people on the ground. Go and talk to the lady under the mango tree. Say who you are, introduce yourself, and just talk to them as fellow human beings. You will soon be taught what you should do and what you shouldn't do, what you should say and what you shouldn't mm. say. You'll become a son, a brother. Uh, once you once you just treat people on the same level, uh, it's a great feeling. It really is. Um, mm. Aboriginal people have a great sense of humour. You first of all always start off when you go there, who do you barrack for? That's yeah. the first thing you say. Yeah. yeah. And you work from there. <laughs> but um, And I umpire a lot of footy too, so I umpire out in communities. Yeah. So... Um, but uh, yeah, you need you need to um, have people that have that back background experience. It makes so much difference when you when you when you talk on something. That's why you should keep going, keep moving out, keep going around looking at places. Don't be scared to spend some money. You know, it is taxpayers' money. Don't be scared to go out and find out what's going on. Yeah. So, Although Andy Cowan might be uh, Andy Cowan's uh, landed himself in a bit of hot water today by the reading the NT Independent. With his little jaunt, uh, I junk it to uh, the to Disney World <laughs> oh, <laughs> on, on the tax pay of a dime. <laughs> Not doing well, well yeah. fracking at Disney World, I don't think. <laughs> no. oh, well, I'm sure that uh, story. Yeah, well, I was. Uh, I think. I, I think. I think. On one of my trips, I took one day off. That was on the way back from Vancouver. I stopped at Hawaii. I paid that bit, so yeah. I did the bus tour around the Big Island. Yeah, that was my my day off. Right. Yeah, I wasn't going to stop. I needed to stop there to have a look at things besides fracking and government and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. Well, uh, I'm going to end with by asking Pete the question I was going to ask him. Um, mm-hmm. and that is, mate, uh, you and I have interviewed a number of politicians on this podcast over the year. Yep. Um, where would you rate? Jerry. <laughs> oh, do I turn off the sound now? <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't need to turn the sound off. I mean, one of the reasons why I, I was, A, looking forward to talking to you and it hasn't disappointed in talking to you is because, you know, you, that this concept of an independent um, is, is enticing from an information point of view because... You know, you talk to anybody who's aligned with a party and while they will give you a bit of themselves, there's always this other bit that's towing the party line and it gets quite frustrating after a while, whereas that's why, you know, I asked the question, what's it like being an independent? Because your your candour is exactly all we ask for in this situation. And, you know, what you say makes sense. It comes from a place of your thoughts. Like you say, you're not always right, you're not always wrong, but you've got to ask the questions to, to probe, to, to get the answers. And that's, to me, the common sense way to do it. But we, we don't see a lot of common sense with the major parties at times. Yeah, that's probably the bit I'll miss. <laughs> I, I, just, I don't want to end up being only, only a whinging old pensioner. I, I'll, keep, I'll, I'll keep an interest in politics, that's for sure. But I've got other work to do. Well, I've got five acres here that needs work. <laughs> well, Jerry, um, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure talking to you and it's so wonderful to be able to get your story down here on this podcast, which will be here in Time Memoriam, um, because uh, you know I think you're a great guy. I think you've done a lot for the for the community, not just your community, but for territory politics. 
and I think you'll be very sorely missed. So thank you very, very much. Thanks, Leon. Thanks, Peter. Thank you. That was Jerry Wood, the soon-to-be-retiring member for Nelson, uh, independent member, that is, on the Territory Story podcast. We'll catch you next time. You've been listening to the Territory Story podcast with Leon Logan-Nathan and Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story podcast on all leading podcasting platforms, the Territory Story podcast. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.